Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. You are listening to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us this Monday morning. And uh, here's to a great show. We are looking forward to talking today about ESGs, a few developments in uh, the climate space, as always. But we'll begin for now with some feedback. But before that, here's a reminder. Our text number is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. So one feedback that caught my attention and, you know, we only have time to tell a couple of those here this morning. But this one, it it really spoke to me. It says, hi, Jaspreet. I wanted to mention about the Greenwashed podcast you did with Don. As a worker in the dairy industry for over 11 years, ending in 2019, I found the struggle as an employee was that I had to be paid less and worked more hours using more skill sets than overseas workers. They were looking to go for residency. I was like a sacrificial lamb. I worked often for friends who got citizenships and then employed immigrants. They are now paying a horrendous amount that I, as a Kiwi, could only have dreamt of and were not or were unable to do stuff like tractors, work, mowing, and took time off for various regions, including religious and cultural. I was never offered options, didn't take sick days, and was prepared to work outside the standard hours to look after the animals. Often inexperienced people who did not care too much about the environment, animals, and the other aspects of farming got better offers than me. This is my experience. I have worked with many nationalities and trained many of them. I was never promoted to manager, even though I worked on the farm as though it was mine, like a farm girl. I never said no to a single job unless, of course, it was immoral. Really hard workers are not required is my conclusion. In the end, I feel like it just cost me my relationships with my children, but I would still go back and do it all again. I love the farm life and I miss it. Anyway, just my short thoughts. Thank you for what you're doing. Have a great day. Don, what do you think of that one? Well, it's got to be the saddest, uh, saddest message we've had. And it's an indictment on the New Zealand uh, system, uh, you know, parliament, uh, the immigration, you name it. It's just the employment law. It's just a sad indictment on the on what we've inherited as a country from, I don't know whether it's just the last five years of government or whether it was beyond that before, you know, before that. But your heart goes out to this lady. She's clearly wanting to be a um, strong rural supporter and worker and uh, being treated as a second-rate citizen in terms of her her, uh, her wages, let alone her status, is just obscene. Yeah, and this is something I have spoken about. Now, many employers, I would like to hope, are not doing this out of choice. It is being forced upon them. And uh, yeah, for listeners who remember, there was somebody who messaged us in saying that uh, Jaspreet wants her workers to be treated as slaves and pay slave labor or something on those lines. My issue there was exactly what this lady has pointed out to us. Look after your own backyard first. 
do the right. But what's happened is that this government, in its wisdom, has mandated that overseas workers' wages need to be matched to New Zealand median wage. At one time, there was no difference. And I'm talking of when my husband and I came to New Zealand in 2009. What I needed to get a worker's visa was the same that any Kiwi would need, you know, minimum wage. But they have pushed it up and up. And right now, the median wage is, I think, $29.10. That's excluding holiday pay. So even a beginner has to now be paid, you know, $31, dollars per hour. And there's only so much money to go around. And what's happening is, because of labor shortages, people are dependent on foreign labor. Because they are, they need to be paying them those wages. Because of inflation and cost pressures, who bears the brunt? Of course, the farm owners, but also Kiwi employees. They are the ones who get what is left after the employer is able to do what immigration says is needed to get their foreign workers a visa. This this just stinks. Yep, and it's been talked about and talked about and talked about. Uh, I know that the farmer organisations have lobbied uh, on many fronts. I'm not sure if this was front and centre, but uh, let's hope it was. Um, anyone that can, can support this sort of concept um, hasn't been thinking it through well enough. What's the remedy? Well, um, it always goes back to paying fair you know, have, having people paid on merit, and ex- that is experience, and the rest is irrelevant. Merit is what should be uh, first and foremost with any any payment for wages. Um, disappointing that it's not in this instant, instance. Free labour market, don't skew it. Let the willing buyer and willing seller mm. decide. Something mm. similar what they have done in the case of Pines and incentivized foreign owners coming and paying higher amounts for New Zealand pastoral properties than, you know, a fellow Kiwi can. And then you see that vast mass pine monoculture that is supposedly going to save us from climate Armageddon. Uh, oh, yeah. And of course, uh, you know, if you um, weaken the currency with the way we've we've governed the country in recent years, um, we are just making it easier for outside capital to come to the country and take us uh Take take an easy chunk of uh, of our land or buildings. Now, it shouldn't be that way. You're right, Jaspreet, but that's because New Zealanders consistently sign up for uh, more government, not less. Less government's better, but we don't sign up for that. New Zealanders vote in each and every election for even more money beyond what would be fair and reasonable with population growth, and. You've only got to look at these stats for government spending in the last five years. And I know there was a, a pandemic in the middle of it, but it is now an obscenity, uh, the the quantum that's been borrowed and spent on our behalf by the, this government. And it can only be paid back by real hardworking Kiwis uh, getting us back on track. And that's the dilemma. We've got all these people in, in high places saying they don't want the environment used they don't want farming, they don't want mining, they don't want fishing to any greater extent than it was before. And they can use the word sustainable as long as they like. But the people putting more pressure on the environment aren't farmers, aren't fishers. Um, 
but but government policies, because the only way we're going to pay the bill as a country is to use the environment. Mm-hmm. We keep selling out, and yeah, we're we're going to talk in a bit about uh, smart cities and stuff as well. You know, you look at the wiring diagram for all of these people that are involved. Doesn't matter how you cut it, none of them have earned much in their life. They're being paid by all of us. Mm. And you know, I call them reef fish. Um, it really annoys me. It's what I've always been after. But yeah, and like I said in previous weeks, there is a fine line. These people all do have the right to demand. Well, they do demand, they do consume, and they do speculate like you and me. So it's all about balance. None of us want to say that what we earn should just be ours and ours alone. We spread it through uh, the whole machinery of, of, of a country's economic behaviour. It's just skewed at the moment. And I'm sorry, that diverted way away from um, <laughs> from the lady and her dilemma with, uh, with the wage system here and the immigration system. But it's symptomatic. This whole thing is symptomatic of New Zealand today. And reading that article of uh, Bob Jones a couple of days ago about uh, the rankings in the IMF, International Monetary Fund of New Zealand, it gives us a massive fail. It's cringeworthy after 35 or 40 years of reform that got us back on track um, to have wasted it in five years. I find it obscene. I've used that word obscene three times in this interview already. I better stop. (laughs) Dave, we have another feedback here. Uh, This is from Sue in Wellington. She says, and this is because Don and I had spoken about smart cities last time. And I believe RCR has heard from the New Zealand Australian country director, Janat Makbul herself. And we might be getting her on at some stage. So she heads the New Zealand Australia Smart City Network. But right now, so Sue had emailed her council. She writes to us, Hi guys, I had asked our council, did they sign us up to 15-minute smart cities? As I'd heard on RCR that NZ was the first country to have all councils signed up. Here is their reply. Kiara Sue, we have not signed up to become a 15-minute city and don't know how we would. We are not aware of any centralized body that is managing this idea. We are planning for the future of the Kapiti Coast and have developed a growth strategy to guide this work. It's called Tupu Pai, Growing Well, and was consulted on in 2021 and adopted in February 2022. You can find it online on the Kapiti Coast Council's website. Uh, this and other strategies inform Kapiti's long-term plan, which outlines our planned activities. We talk of well-being and a set of principles, applications to for our communities and neighborhoods to encourage low-carbon living and enabling choice. It also applies government direction, blah, blah, blah. Recently, councils have adopted some priorities, so on and so forth. But yeah, they say they have uh, no idea that there is planning for smart cities. And I have... Uh, no reason to disbelieve them because I'm sure if you ask any councillor across the country, they would have no idea. But until we can get the Janath online here, I am going to see if we can get part of her interview on for you and get listen to her. So this is Janath Makbul. She is speaking at a LinkedIn local Hamilton chapter event called Living in a Digital World. This is a 
part uh, excerpt of her talk on July the 6th, 2021. Here goes. Your data, what they do with the data and the fact that you can be permission, but the reality is it's all happening now anyway. Your data is being sucked off your phones and your devices and everything that you do now. So the best thing we can do in that space is awareness. Um, the other thing that I do is I'm the country director um, for the smart... This is not enough time to go into what you need to do about data. Um, but um, the other thing I do is I'm the country director for the Smart Cities Council Australia New Zealand. For So we're, we're working with 78... New Zealand is going to be shortly the announcement. We're just waiting for our partner organisation to sign the MOU. New Zealand is going to be the first country in the world to have every single local government body working on a smart city strategy ever. Wow. Wow. So, so we're we're heading into that in that direction. And so that's about that's about technology and data and leveraging it to make cities more livable, workable, and sustainable. We're totally focused on the SDGs, not just number eleven. That's to do with smart cities. Our big conversation in that space is the future of place. What does place look like? What does it look like? Not just from a council perspective, but engaging with our communities. But what does it look like in terms of planners? infrastructure specialists, um, environmentalists, you know, all of that. What does that, what does the future of place look like? It's no longer a city, it could be a town, it could be a region. So... Uh, that was Jannat Magpul speaking about uh, smart cities uh, nearly two years ago now. And, you know, if that is the sort of uh, future you live on, I have absolutely no problem. But I think my problem is that people don't know. Even councils don't know what they have been signed up to. And Jannat, she refers to waiting for the partner uh, organization they have in the space to sign the MOU. That partner organization, Don and I spoke about last week, is Algem. And Algem is your Association for Local Government Information Management. So it is this organization that consists mostly to what I can see of chief information officers from a dozen odd councils that have signed us up to this particular agenda of smart cities. And I, I really admire Janet being so upfront. She speaks about the fact that they are focused not just on SDG 11, United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Number 11, that's on smart cities, but all of the SDGs, you know, which is exactly what Jacinda Arden said in 2017, uh, 2019, at the Goalkeepers in New York, that New Zealand will be the first country in the world to put these sustainable development goals into our very legislation. So, Sue, your councillors might just be completely right. They have no idea that this has happened and that all we are the first country in the world to be signed up to these smart cities, but it, it has happened. You might like to enlighten them further or we might have Janet coming on on RCR uh, sometime soon and get her take on it. But my issue here is choice, transparency, and democracy. What are, you, what are your thoughts, Don? Well, all of the above. Uh, but what was intriguing within that, uh, that, that excerpt that you've just played was the gasps and the giggles from the crowd when... Uh, Janet uh, talked about how the data was being sucked from their phones now, as if that was oh, acceptable. Uh, yeah, they laughed and they were mm. sort of a bit of humour and mirth about it. Well, I can assure you there's no humour and mirth uh, coming from me on that. Uh, we we do know, uh, well, we, do, we assume, listening to people like her, that this sort of stuff could be happening. 
But to have someone like Jeanette uh, actually say it is happening should put the fear of um, up everybody. It should put the fear into all of us because, you know, the data of the individual is sacrosanct. And, you know, it, it just, it is being that, that individual ownership is being tested all the time. Uh, the other thing that got me was she talked about the future of place. Why do these people have a mortgage on these ideas? I mean, place has been around since time began, man, you know, since man and woman ha inhabited the work, uh, the, the world. What the heck's going on today that there's some unique uh, idea of place? I actually happen to like my place. Um, I'm not going to tell anybody else uh, how to be placed in the world. Uh, we do understand that uh, New Zealand's got a dispersed population compared to some places, uh, but, you know, we like it that way, don't we? Uh, and, and yet the next generation may not. They may say they want to live in um, in high-rise and dense, uh, high-density housing areas with no playgrounds, no run, room to run around other than a communal one. So there we use a word called communal. And um, that has its, you know, there's a lot of words can come from commune. And that's what I don't like about it all. Go back to my individualism story. It seems these people just, just don't want to have it. They want to have us all in little boxes controlled. And if you're signing us up to something, you know, which you say is absolutely going to change the way New Zealand lives, is going to change the way our cities look, the way we lead our lives. Where was our input into that? I can tell you, I have watched council proceedings like a hawk, both behind the table where I am now and when I was not in council. And I saw nothing like this pass through. And as Dawn can tell you, I don't have a life. I enjoy reading paperwork till the cows come home, literally till the cows come home. And I saw nothing of the sort. So that is where I take uh, umbrage at this. Well, you and that's great that you do take umbrage because I take umbrage that no New Zealand politician is willing to acknowledge this. Even today, they will not acknowledge that the United Nations SDGs are, uh, are rummaging through everything we do uh, in our local government, let alone central government. Why that denial? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. I mean, this is coming at great cost to every ratepayer and every taxpayer. As I talked about earlier, we're feeding the reef fish all around the edges of this. I mean, I did. I got a hell of a shock the other day to read in this sort of same, uh, and I'll say to your listeners that Jasper me, gives me a big bundle of, of links to open. And there I saw the Auckland City, signed up by uh, Phil Goff, former mayor, is part of the uh, of the new green deal concept which was yeah as we know was sort of first mooted as i thought about in the united states but there's uh, is it 40 cities around the world including auckland part of the new green deal yeah staggers me no it it is there is quite it, it comes back to saying this thing you know when they started talking two three years ago a team of 5 million uh, that I I like to be part of teams that I have chosen explicitly explicitly to be a part of, not just, you know, uh, herded into a group that I never was given an option to opt out of. It is somewhat same here. And I, I hope we can get Jannat on and we can speak more. But the issue here is not, I've often seen people attack the messenger. 
The issue is to be able to have a conversation in this space, regardless of whosoever is a messenger, as a Jannat or your counselors or anyone, that whatever happened to uh, a democracy, whatever happened to that, you would think that, you know, we as a country in New Zealand, all our councils, we have a spokesperson called LGNZ. You look up their website, www.lgnz.co.nz. And they say, what is their vision? And they say that their vision, you know, for them is to make New Zealand the most vibrant, thriving local democracy in the world. In fact, to quote them exactly, to quote LGNZ, they say, LGNZ provides the vision and voice for local democracy in Aotearoa. We have a bold ambition to create the most active and inclusive local democracy in the world. Where is LGNZ on this? Where is the statement from them that we have, you know, signed you up to this uh, whole smart cities uh, agendas? And it's it's been quite a while, guys. The code for the smart cities, New Zealand Australian smart cities, were released in 2018. Dawn and I went into it last time. Uh, you can find more details in our show notes from last week. But it refers to planning documents from the world over, right from eco-districts, an American concept, and where they speak about uh, having uh, you know, cities that are about racial equality and climate resilience. And these are the same people who, if there's ever a protest on, and I, I am now going off on a tangent, they say that New Zealand has gone to American-style you know, protests. But yet they have no qualms bringing all these concepts from Black Lives Matter to everything right into the very hearts of our uh, places, our cities, our smart cities. Yeah, and, and yeah, you're right. Uh, it's slowly uh, being eased into the New Zealand psyche. Uh, we've talked about it a few weeks ago, how words matter. Uh, words are good at confusing or covering up what the underlying uh, output might or outcome may be. We talked about the nudge unit uh, development in New Zealand, uh, sort of the UK model of uh, paying people to develop the right wording. So you nudge yeah. society to a specific point. And that's been happening right under our nose. Yeah. Our prime minister was even bold enough, former prime minister was bold enough to espouse this sort of stuff in her acceptance speeches on the night of the elections. And we still were asleep at the wheel. Um, it's weird how we've let it happen at great uh, cost, I might add. At very, very great cost. So Don was talking about the Auckland, uh, you know, being a part of C40 cities. We just didn't stop there. Aucklanders, you also have a C40 Auckland Women for Climate Mentorship Program that supports the emergence of Auckland's next generation of women climate leaders. And I see on the Auckland Council's web, on the C40 website, where they're talking about New Zealand, that the program has just closed. It closed in March, this year's intake. But the you have to admire the level of you know planning to create these influencers and movers and shakers about, honestly, if climate was about everything, what does it mean about suddenly women in, in climate or women are affected more? Or we saw when the floods happened, 
There was a talk of Maori communities being affected more. What is this whole obsession about placing us all in neat little boxes, tagging them? This is what you are. This is what your identity is. And yeah, there we go. But it's about um, it's about diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> Simply, I mean, it's the regime. Uh, everyone's feeling that they're not uh, being looked out for as as well as their neighbour. Um, again, it's about stealing individualism and mm. and trying to make your own way in the world. I I'm mystified by it all, Jasper. But then I have to sort of look at it this way: that I've been lucky enough to get out of the the regime that I was in. I, I was a state employee in the late 70s and I couldn't stand it. So I went back into private enterprise and I've never come out of private enterprise. And I just, I sort of see how these people find their way in. They get educated and they see a niche and they become salespeople for their words. And it becomes quite attractive to a counsellor or a, someone who listens to these the sales pitch about let's set up a community market or or something like that um and the rest is history you just you slowly i think the word is wheedle your way in mm. into the networks and yeah. you're there now did they used to exist before the reforms of 1985 in New Zealand i don't think so this is a relatively new concept I- um Probably. It is very symptomatic of the whole woke movement, isn't it? This wishy-washy, feel-good, and yeah, we are all in this together stuff. But when you look at it, there's these very deliberate agendas that are pushing this. You you mentioned, you know, you said all of this is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, just read. Uh, there is uh, the C40 Auckland Women in Climate is not the only one. We're going to highlight a couple more here. One... Uh, particular organization it is called the future leaders new zealand the website is just futureleaders.nz and it says future leaders is a free and accessible part-time program that supports young people aged 16 to 25 to connect develop skills confidence work on meaningful projects but then they define the meaningful projects for you i'm looking at last year's one last year was well-being and climate and then Youth Climate Hui's, they ran in six communities, Kawirao, Opotiki, Fakatane, Kaikohe, Fangarai, and Greymouth. And then they give you the demographics. So again, if it was just about youth, 16 to, what was it? 16 to 25 years old, let's just leave it at that. No, there's then there's demographics available on futureleaders.nz page, 78% Maori, 6% Asian, 3% Pacifica, 28% New Zealand European. So literally everywhere where I look, it seems you are nothing unless what your DNA or what your ethnicity is about is put into the picture and you view the world through such a lens. And our children, are being indoctrinated on this DEI, which is the American phrase for it. You know, they have uh, in America and most big corporates, you will see diversity, equity, and inclusion managers. This part of an HR support function, and it's slowly been becoming bigger and bigger. And they've begun local chapters here. This is, uh, I, 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 
I worry for our youth. I really worry for it. Coming coming from a country, India, where separating us on basis of religion was what politicians thrived on. I watch it here and my heart sinks. Yep, creating division. Interestingly, uh, I think in some websites I've looked at, it's not just DEI or let's say DIE, either way. <laughs> um, they add B on the end of it. So it's DIBE. Uh, and the last, the B stands for belonging. God damn, I, I just, how <laughs> soft and woke and weak is all this going? <laughs> there used to be a time when you would be expected to go to work, do a good day's work for, a, you know, and go home. It has now come to uh, all these costs are ultimately. Why are we talking about this? Because none of this comes without associated costs. None of this. Look around you. Are you hearing of prominent businesses? By prominent, I don't mean big, but businesses, you know, that was sort of the cornerstone of your local community closing. We've had three pubs close around in a 100-kilometer radius around here recently. And it is not just Southland. I would presume it's really happening in other places. These businesses are, of course, being hammered by costs, but there are other costs that are coming in slowly. It's only the bigger businesses that can afford much of this. And dominance is the worst thing uh, a community or a country can have, dominance of any player. We know that competition creates better outcomes. Mm. Um, you do, And if you ever want diversity, you actually have competition. That's what you have. Um, but this diversity we're talking about here is, um, yeah, it's it's about... Uh, well, what it's it's clearly it's hard to define what that diversity is, just is here. DNA based diversity, I would say, or diversity based on your sexual orientation, mm -hmm. which ordinarily in a workplace shouldn't even matter, should it? I, I wonder how do these organizations that are now reporting on the uh, you know sexual orientation diversity of people. So did they go along and ask, are we actually we've reached that stage? In, yeah. uh, in a workplace is to ask, I maybe um, then I'm a dinosaur, but you just go, you work with your fellow colleagues on occasion. You might have something to, you know, as a mom, you might have something about a kid's sports going on or something. But other than that, I would never ask anyone about any such thing. But then that's just an old fashioned idea. Seems to be old fashioned. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I worked for wages when I was younger. Um, I clearly, remember being bullied by women in the workplace, but I just accepted that was normal. Um, never had, never ever had a man bully me. Um, and I read the stats out on, uh, on, on another part of the show that 80% uh, of the bullying in the workplace is woman to woman um, in New Zealand. So misand and, and, you know, I found it the other way around. I found misandrists uh, abounded in my life where they thought it was okay to bully the man. So this is all just, but uh, but I just tough it out. I mean, I didn't need someone to hold my hand and say, get over, you know, come and see me and have a bit of counselling. I know this, it sounds like old fashioned, as you say, Jaspreet, but it's how humans work. Uh, there is a power play going on every day, uh, but we don't need all this, all this stuff. I mean, you go into the site even a bit further and this campaign's being run by this, um, where did I go to? I went to, uh, 
oh, it was Woman in Urbanism, I think it was. Mm. Mm. And I went in there and there, there's kids, cars and climate. And then you see uh, all the cartoons, you know, all the caricatures and, and pictorials, and you think, uh, how many of these things have we got to suffer? Some of them are okay, no problem. But you know, when you showed me earlier in the day um, pictures of the latest books that could be available around trans kids and the like, mm. I mean, it just... Where does it all end? I we've asked this question so many times. It's got to be talked about. I was disappointed the other day to hear um, on Paul Brennan's uh, interview with David Seymour that David didn't want to be questioned or put Paul under a bit of pressure about um, trans uh, people um, reading nursery rhymes in school in schools. Well, you know, most parents don't even know that's happening. Is that normal? Is it right? Uh, is it acceptable? That question's never been asked, but but David didn't seem to think that it was a fair question to even be talked about. So I don't know. We've all got a we've all got different views, and our job on RCR is to hopefully flush out all views so that people can make a reasonable choice. Absolutely. Well, when I looked at this futureleaders.nz website, went to the about page as I am prone to do, and it seems they are also the organizer of another uh, NGO, I'd say. Uh, this is called the Festival for the Future. Their website is a bit odd. It's festivalforthefuture.co, just .co. And when I open that website, I see straight away the first image is Shanil Lal, a New Zealander of the year. And, you know, we all remember the the episode when we had a British activist, or, you know, it, it depends which way you look at it, but we had Posey Parker come out here and not being allowed to talk. So it is his face. I am not quite sure. I, mean, I might be using the wrong pronoun here, but it's his face that is up on the website of uh, Festival for the Future. And they have uh, a program on the 8th and 9th of June in Wellington in the brand new convention center, Takina. And looking at the program and seeing what is going on in this one, one can't just help but look, but just ponder how much we are going on about diversity and equity, while at the same time as when we just began, we don't even bother to consult citizens about smart cities or any other mandates or EV mandates or anything. It's just, you know, thrown upon us and that's where you have people there most of the speakers there that you see on the festival for the future they are about diversity equity sustainability pretty much everything is about the un sdgs you know the same ones that are a big conspiracy theory don and and when I look through the list and I I look at their images, um, none of them like they're doing it hard in life. They all look to be um, very well paid presenters. Uh, so so good on them. Uh, but yeah, I think there's just so much virtue signaling going on by all these places that who, you get a bit funds, over it. Who funds these things? You know. Well, event managers make a killing out of these sorts of things. I, yeah, you know, when I was in Wellington, I used to go to events, and I do know the cost of registration for things like this is generally pretty high. 
Mm. Um, and so event management's a big ticket item. And, and of course, if you're a, a city that can run conferences and events, and so you've got a big hotel and a, or a big board a conference room, you can make a mint out of this stuff. That's mm. how it works. It's mm. it's the way of the world, Jasper. I mean, it's, it's worldwide. This isn't just New Zealand. <laughs> I've been invited to even um, a place called Yangling City in the outer China doing this stuff, and it was all paid for by others. Yeah. Um, I've been to many conferences where it's been paid for by others yeah. uh, to address them. And you know that the participants pay a lot of money to go there. It's 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 like a it's like going to sport. People gravitate, you know, the the beltway of of people that work in policy settings and plannings and all that sort of thing, they love getting to these sorts of events. Mm. It's their gravy train, as you might call it. I'm I'm looking at the speakers. I'm looking at Vivian Chandra, facilitator of OMG Tech. Vivian is passionate about all things tech with a laser focus on diversity and inclusion to make Aotearoa a better place to be. And uh, she is in a day job accredited facilitator of the Ministry of Education, demystifies technology for teachers in Aotearoa. The word they've actually used is Kayako. For teachers, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, and to enable them to influence the next generation of Kiwis. And in one of her many side gigs, Vivian works with other tech peeps at Ali Skills out here or NZ to bring JEDI. Now that's another new term. What is JEDI? Justice, equity, diversion, and inclusion skills to corporate out here. In addition to her work, she is an accredited personal safety trainer with a Kai Haumaru, a feminist treaty-based organization. So again, you see the adjectives being used, feminist, treaty-based. It's almost like until you bring you every bit of this, of uh, what you believe, what you think, what you identify with critically, race-wise, it, it doesn't seem to be done. And she's currently a PhD student at Vaipapa Tamata, University of Auckland, researching the effectiveness of Relationship and sex education with on Rangatahi boys. Gosh, one one wonders at the value proposition, and I have no doubts. Vivian is a very, very accomplished in her field. She's got currently a PhD student, and all of that. Where's the value proposition in this? What what does even you know all these catchy acronyms? Jedi, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion mean? I, I came to New Zealand on 14 years ago. This has slowly started entering the lexicon. I could tell you, had this all this been going on in 2009, then I would have run for the hills. I didn't see this until more recently. <laughs> and, the, and those of us that have been here forever um, have let it just creep in. Uh, none of these people will have um, started out their life this way. Mm. It's part of the regime. They've been allowed to find their way in. Mm-hmm. And also have been paid to continue in the vein they 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 choose, and mm-hmm. so some of them will um, be very entrepreneurial mm-hmm. um, and good on them. We've given them the platform, but you've just used a term, the value proposition. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, oh, "What does that mean?" Uh, and of course, we know what it means. It's about getting value. Um, what, what is it that you're you're selling and what is it that I want to buy? Yeah. And 
and I don't mean to be rude, but at, at my age, I don't want to buy anything from these people. That's no. pretty cynical, isn't it? Yet, yet most of my my children perhaps do. So I've got to realize, uh, am I, you know, it, things evolve. We've talked about this before, and this will either get legs and grow. It's grown a lot since you've been in New Zealand, 14, 15 years, mm. but it might die a death in a recession as well. Um, it didn't. It didn't in the GFC. So fat hope it might die now, but because I think we are heading to tighter times. But you know, people will have to get a value proposition from this, and I'm not sure I can see one. No, I I see another speaker there, Sophie Hanford. She is 22. Uh, she's uh, I think when she got elected, Sophie was our youngest councillor at the age of 19, and. Uh, She's yes. from Capiti, but she was the founder of a School Strike for Climate. Because mm. I remember her from that time, the movement and coordinated the movement, which mobilized 170,000 young people across the country to unite for climate justice. And uh, looking at Sophie's website, I mean, good on her. These are young people, really young. Many of, you know, I can uh, talk of many youth who probably have no idea, probably won't be half as red as she is. But again, the climate and how, what sort of uh, the whole narrative are these people pushing and how convenient that they are being given platform after platform, whereas some of our guests who will come on in, these are people with PhDs, 50 years, 60 years teaching or in the industry and they, they get cancelled. I, I look at Sophie's uh, website and she speaks of the fact that, you know, in 2019, I ran for council at the age of 18. I'm now holding the climate and youth portfolios at the Capiti Coast District Council, also studying part-time at Victoria University of Wellington, doing a bachelor's, majoring political communication, have represented New Zealand at APEC, and again, my commitment and connections to a diverse community is because the next generation is counting on us. Value propositions here. Value propositions. I, I, look, I've been part of the, um, yeah, people ask me, who's a good speaker to get to a function or something like this? I've been part of that regime. And I see here now on your website, you can request a speaker at the inspiring speaker conferences. So you can actually put names in. So the way I understand life now is if you don't put yourself forward, you don't get recognised. And there are people that have got a barrow to push. So they are very front and center. They are very bolshy. And the rest of us are quite reserved. We don't we don't want to be recognized and, and you sort of earn your stripes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. The confident the confidence with which young people put themselves out there today is unbelievable. As you read out a couple of weeks ago uh, about a, a response to a farming page, this young guy basically saying, get the hell out of the way, old guys, uh, we're coming through, we know better. Mm. But on and on that vein, just last week, we've heard about the Gore City, uh, Gore Town Mayor being under the pump by his own councillors. Mm. Yeah. And I've, I've, I take my hat off to that young guy. I take my hat off to Alex Crackett from Invercargill, who today, who last week on the media said, um, uh, you know, good on Ben, but then she she ruined it for me. She said it's just the old boys' network trying to crucify him. I'd say she got that a hundred percent wrong. Um, time will tell, but clearly, uh, experience is important. 
don't write us all off, young people. That's all I'd say. Just don't write us <laughs> off. And I think we should wrap up this first segment on with a green junket of the week. Should we? Well, perhaps. Where do you think that was? Right. And I, I just saw a beehive uh, release saying that uh, we have our agriculture minister, 6th of May, this release was. So he's probably in the USFA as we talk. Agriculture minister to attend Global Climate Summit. So this was held. It's called the Agricultural Innovation Mission AIM. Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate Summit, 8th to 10th May. And this was in Washington earlier this week and earlier last week. And Damien departed uh, for United States to lead the New Zealand delegation. And he says, as we adjust to changing consumer trends and a changing climate, we must support New Zealand farmers and growers to keep up their work on reducing farm emissions. Somebody tell me how much lesser than a quarter of the percent of the world's emissions can you get to? And this is without going into the whole carbon dioxide debate. Growing exports and retaining a competitive edge. Primary exports hit $53.1 billion in the year ended June 22. They were over 80% of our exports to New Zealand. And it's key we continue that momentum. Good yep. Lord. Well, it, it's not uncommon um, to have these junkets, as you call them, Jaspreet. They're happening every day, every uh, in every country. Uh, this one uh, is a bit uh, a bit on on the nose, though. When you hear him in that one paragraph where you talked about reducing farm emissions, we must continue to to support New Zealand farmers and growers. Actually, the best support they could do is get out of our lives. Let us get on with the idea of producing, uh, and with with our companies that we export through, or as individuals being the people that set the platform for that uh, trust and safe product that they want to sell to the world. It is the it is the business of government to set the platform in terms of opening up corridors to trade, but then they don't own the product, so get out of the way. That's the bottom line. So junket of the week, um, yeah, look, we'll call it that, but it's not uncommon. Uh, mm. People and companies are always putting people on what you might call junkets. It's just that value proposition. You can't see it, can you, Jaspreet? I, I cannot, and when I open the website of this place it is gone to, aimforclimate.org. Again, Don, you can't miss the diversity equity. It says diversity, gender equity, and inclusion are critical to the success of this climate mission. Aim for Climate recognizes a wide range of participants necessary to achieve its goals and seeks to draw on diverse knowledge, experience, and culture. So, diversity, gender equity, and inclusion. I can tell you cows don't care. Beef cattle don't care. Wheat and sugarcane stuff that we, my husband and our families have grown in India didn't care. So what what are they talking about here? I pass. I don't know, but I, when I see the word uh, share, sharing information and collaborating and all that sort of thing, I'm I'm cynical. I mean, it goes back to and it's like I'm a broken record today. Uh, you know, the rights of the individual uh, being bludgeoned by big government. Mm. I'm just over it. But, you know, until all of us are over it, uh, it isn't going to change. This is the regime we've chosen for the moment. Uh, it has, it's been growing and growing and growing for many decades now. 
um, this last five years have just been the worst. And I, I would argue that, and I was thinking that Bob Jones, Sir Bob Jones' article about the IMF and New Zealand's state in the world sums it all up. We've just wasted 35 years of improvement and lost it all in five. It's just not ideal, but that's a miserable way to end this this topic. But, um, you yeah, know, New Zealand, those New Zealand farmers and businesses are under the pump right now, let alone homeowners. What a hell of a mess uh, to the governance of the last five years. What a hell of a mess. Yep, it is. It is a mighty pickle we find ourselves in. And it's God, it's going to take some undoing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> They, well, uh, well, of course, uh, governments just, infl you know, inflation takes care of this in terms of new in numbers, doesn't it? You think about it, you just inflate your way to to the next uh, better times. You know, the numbers look, just get bigger. You'd, and hopefully you don't keep the debt rising at the same time. But in the end, you inflate your way out of this. That's the problem. That's what happened last time. That's what happened last time. And you, you told me, 80s, you just managed to scrape by by the skin of your teeth. Yeah, it wouldn't do it today because bankers um, won't bank people that are stressed uh, mm. to the level, and especially if you're trying to challenge the authorities, as as we may talk again about, is how our, how restrictive the bankers are being on some particular businesses. They just basically are saying there's no more. There is no more. Yeah, and age, and some of it's very ageist, by the way, as well. You know, you're over sixty, hard to get money. Yeah. All right. I think that is a good point to end this segment. Our text number is 2057. Our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. I'd really like to thank uh, the lady who wrote in to us, especially about um, her experience in the dairy industry and being edged out by migrant workers. As, as a migrant worker myself and now a citizen, I, I can fully empathize with it, where she is coming from. Thank you for your candidness, and uh, please keep those feedbacks coming through. Don and I will see you in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello, and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Our text number is 2057. And please keep those texts coming through. We really appreciate your feedback. And emails at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And I am very happy to introduce today Jill Booth. For listeners who have followed uh, my journey and even Dawn's on uh, the old VFF channels and followed our podcasts, Jill should be a familiar name. Hi, Jill. Hi, how are you? And um, greetings to any of our listeners that have been through us with us through um, BFF, BFF podcast. Been through us would be right. Been, it? been through with us, <laughs> I should say. Yes. Yes. So Jill and I, we have done about a year and a half of fortnightly podcasts with the Voices of Freedom. I think beginning, uh, was it winter of 2021, Jill? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it was winter of 2021. And I remember doing the first one and thinking that that was going to be the only one. 
um, and then realising that this was going to morph into a, a fortnightly um, session about, you know, the, the seriousness of what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So we, I think we did close to 18 months of every fortnight, hour, hour and a half of a webinar, and that was really good. It actually forced me to put my thoughts of all that I had been reading for close to 30 years now, just because my dad served with the United Nations in Somalia in 1992. And, you know, the brain keeps collecting bits of information and doing those webinars with Jill forced me to put my, I'd say my wayward thoughts into a more coherent form. And uh, we tried to walk people through how these global agendas or these 17 sustainable development goals are coming to their very doorstep. And that's true because um, I went back through some bits and pieces, Jaspreet, and, you know, our very first webinar that we did was UN Agenda Fact or Fiction. And it started off with your um, with your dad's and then your brother's um, involvement with the United Nations and a little bit of my family history with my mother um, growing up in, in Nazi occupied Holland um, from the age of 14 to 18 and then the months of starvation that followed the Second World War and my father who who spent his time in Britain um, during that period. So, you know, we, we both have a family history that's gone back um, into this and it, it, it made us curious. Yeah. Tell me, Jill. What got you interested in reading about the United Nations and SDGs? Because uh, I think you said a couple of decades now. Well, it was, and and I, you know, um, I've I came from a family that had um, my parents. Like I just said, my parents had an amazing background. Both of them also had a an incredible grasp of history, um, and that what we are taught through history, question it all the time, question it, what you've been told may not be true. Um, and then you go through those butterfly years of your teens and your, and your 20s and you really don't care what's going on. Um, but then a few things happened in my life at the same time. Um, my youngest child started school. We got our first home computer and then um, a world-shattering event happened about 20 years ago that made me absolutely fall down that that rabbit hole. And when I first heard about the United Nations and its plan, I just rolled my eyes. I did not believe a word of it. I couldn't see how it could work, um, but I was interested. And and that brought me to UN Agenda 21. Um, it brought me to Rosa Corey, Behind the Green Mask, um, Tom Finton, um, and and all these people that were speaking about the United Nations and how it works, and 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 then I stopped rolling my eyes and they started popping out of my head really, um, <laughs> and, and I found out that what I thought was was just rubbish um, was actually really true, you know. And and all this time later, I now understand the technology you know, to, to be able to um, bring this about. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been quite a, a, a bumpy journey. Yeah. And, Don, we haven't let you get a word in edgeways. When we no, you've first... got two women here, Don. <laughs> you haven't got a chance. <laughs> well, well, maybe I haven't, and I learned today that um, 
in the workplace in New Zealand, 80% of the bullying uh, happens between woman to woman. So uh, maybe I'm safe tonight. Maybe I'm safe. Well, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Jasper and I will, yeah, we'll keep it between each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I became aware of uh, these a long time back, the United Nations agendas, but sort of nothing to see here. It all looks pretty innocuous, nothing, nothing major. And of course, then it uh, talked about Agenda 2030. No one really wanted to involve uh, that discussion with me, at least when I was around Federated Farmers. And so only in about 2015, I met a local councillor who basically told me that the world can only sustain 2 billion people. His preference was 1 billion. And I uh, decided I'd better come home and study what this guy obviously had been um, indoctrinated by. And it became pretty clear that his indoctrination or his his ethic was from the, his gen- the genesis of his uh, ethos was from this sort of Doc, these sort of documents. He may have been taking it to the extreme, who knows. Um, and then I've sort of linked into the leftist agendas of the world and the people that are involving themselves around these United Nations agendas and also then looking to all the wiring diagram, who's feeding who, where it all goes to, and it is for as many people that deny that it is in our, uh, in our do- on our doorstep, it is everywhere. There's nothing you... Uh, look at that doesn't have some reference to the United Nations agenda. So for any New Zealand politician, for any New Zealand um, legacy media to deny that it exists, um, you've got to realise they don't want it to be, um, they don't want it to be exposed for what what it may be. Now, I I go back and I say that, uh, well, all these 17 goals and the 169 sub pillars, they all look pretty, pretty safe. There's nothing to see here. So it is about, um, if if you think there's nefarious ends to this, it is uh, perhaps about exposing them. And yeah, certainly there's a cost to all of them. And that's our job to try and show that. Um, and it's our, it's our um, duty to, yeah, make sure that the public are informed from at least our angle, um, whether they believe it or not, it's up to them. Well, that's true, you know, and, it, you know, sometimes... You know, sometimes you've just got to keep going directly to the horse's mouth. And so on YouTube, there's an amazing video, and it's Jacinda Ardern at the Goalkeepers Conference, where in in front, you know, and this was hosted by the Gates Foundation, and our Prime Minister of New Zealand um, signed New Zealand up to the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So it's very hard to argue that. And, and while some people look at these goals at a governmental level, um, they've got to come from government to somewhere, you know, and, and they come in down through our councils. And that's what Jaspreet and I kept uncovering. All of the stuff is in your local council. Um, and, and that's how it gets fed down from, from the United Nations through our central government into our, into our local council. Um, and, and we've taken a long time to to uncover that step by step, um, almost go goal by goal. Hey, Jasper, <laughs> oh, we we literally did those uh, webinars year and a half, goal by goal, and goal uh, by goal. They are still available on the Voices for Freedom Odessi channel, or if you just go to the Voices for Freedom website and click to watch, and there's all the episodes there, along with a whole lot of other very much better hosts than us, I'd say. <laughs> but Jill, do you want to go back to how we met? 
What were you doing oh, then? Holy cross okay. paths. Okay. So, so um, Jasper <clears throat> and I crossed paths a long time before um, Don and I crossed paths. Um, so I was fortunate enough to speak with um, a couple of people who were very invested in what was happening with this, this agenda and they really wanted to put the word out. They were um, terrified for what was happening to New Zealand's rural, um, to our, our whole rural way of life. Both of these people are rural. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be a guest speaker with, with these two people and and I spoke about how this agenda is brought down through council. So, so that was my topic. Another person spoke about common law and another one spoke about the United Nations agenda and, and exactly what it meant for New Zealand and what was going to happen, um, especially with forestation of farmland and carbon credits. So um, so I met Jaspreet at one of these meetings. Yeah, Agricultural Action Group. Agricultural Action Group, yeah. And then she was at another meeting that we were at and then suddenly we clicked and um and I'll very openly say I am so blessed to have Jasper in my life you know the, this woman is a powerhouse of um knowledge and she retains things I don't I forget um you know and and I have the structure of things but Jasper has has detail and then about a year later I met up with Don and and his knowledge of um the climate change issue is is massive and climate change is the linchpin to all of the 17 sustainable development goals without climate change none of these goals will exist you know and and so that's how we met it's been a, a joyous and riotous um couple of years eh, just broke <laughs> it has been it has been and you know i'm i look at these newspaper headlines and Jill and I, we both got enough uh, attention, to put it nicely, from the mainstream media and the disinformation project and everything. But they seem to say now, I'm looking at some headlines uh, from late last year, why were so many Voices for Freedom people at a farming protest? And they tried to say that, uh, you know, a group best known for its objection to the COVID-19 vaccine and pu public health measures, is now an insurgent, self-styled self populist uprising. And they tried to say that uh, we are now morphing into climate issues and others. To, In fact, to quote mainstream media, it says, to sustain its own existence, VFF has been forced to cast a wider net in an effort to re-energize its user base because, uh, hey, the mandates were a thing of the past. And it, it it's laughable. We've been talking, Jill and I, I doubt, Jill, we really focused on the vaccine issue in our UN talks, did we? No. <clears throat> no, we didn't. And and it was at a time when the, the vaccine issue was um, very contentious. Mm. And there were a lot of t people talking about it. But, you know, behind all the big issues, there's there's other issues. Mm. Um, and Jasper and I, we, we and, and with the, um, and I'm so thankful to Voices for Freedom for um, giving us this platform. Um, we were able to talk about issues that were not the vaccine. Mm. 
And really, by then, everybody just needed a bit of a bloody rest from it, to be quite honest. Um, It was all-consuming. It was all-consuming. Exactly. So Um, we spoke at, I doubt we let an episode go past without mentioning the fact that climate change is the linchpin. And, you know, ultimately, that's what it is going to come down. And I can see, uh, Don, what do you think? (laughs) Well, I've always thought something like that was the upshot, uh, as well as my um, crusade on property rights. Uh, they're inextricably yes. linked, actually, all of this stuff, the diminution of private property rights, uh, climate change, these development goals, all part of it. Um, it's quite laughable reading these. Uh, the story from Charlie Mitchell of stuff, though, isn't it, a, a year on, or almost a few months yeah. on, where he talks about, um, Nic- what do you say here, Nicholson sort of... Uh, uh, detailed his belief that Marxism was being deployed globally via the UN and its sustainability goals and suggest it was part of the plot to enslave humanity. Well, my local councillor absolutely told me that, so uh, I believed him. And um, I think there's pretty good reason to believe him. But as you and I have talked on our show, uh, uh, Jasper, uh, the climate stuff, every week we try not to talk about it. Mm. But you can't stop me. I just... It always comes back to it every week. And today we're going to have another guest uh, on climate, basically. Yeah. So, But know. it's it's come down to the fact that you can see nothing, and I mean literally nothing, without any talk of emissions being there. I go into a supermarket. I go into a, you know, a large retailer. There'll be something about sustainability, emissions, uh, be it... I don't know. The whole world seems to be on the same bandwagon, and yet they tell us not to talk about this. But you know, isn't this the truth, Jasper? You know, woman to woman. Um, you know, and, and Don, I'm sure you do some very nice shopping sometimes. But um, you know, women tend to do the supermarket shopping. The truth is, when I buy oranges, I am not worried about what sort of box they come in. Mm. Um, I don't worry about their air miles. Um, you know, I buy oranges and most consumers are exactly the same you know they 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 buy what they need and um you know and if you're lucky you can buy what you want but we've been conned into that everybody is thinking about air miles and everybody's thinking about emissions and everybody's thinking about sustainability and they call it the market um, but I am the market and people like you and I are the market and we're not calling for what these people are calling for in any way or form. does my head in, you know, and, and I worked in an industry that, that exported um, fruit and I could never understand why every box wasn't just in a plain black and white packaging because when I'm buying loose apples at the supermarket, I'm not thinking about the container they came in. Well, the consumer's king, uh, Jill, always has been, always will be. And the open market is what the consumer uh, desires best of all. Of course, the big push from the New Zealand uh, government and uh, the people that support their concept around climate is around, and emissions profiling and all the rest of it, and taxing and measuring and you name it. It's all about this branding. Brand New Zealand's going to give us, uh, it's going to be nirvana in the world. And of course, the argument also is that we only feed 40 or 50 million people with our produce and we should be feeding 40 or 50 million of the most affluent people in the world. Now, mm, yeah. that's that, that's awfully fine if you can brand and, and get to that point. 
but uh and and people do get virtuous and they do get um to buy uh they don't care they just pay the price uh when they've got money but um that doesn't seem um sort of as the united nations would want it does it the united nations wants us all to be sort of equalized uh and we should have all have equal access to produce at a similar price and uh so it seems like a bit of a contradiction is what i'm saying about who, who can didn't blame stalin him? want the same thing <laughs> yeah but but who can blame a marketer if they're trying to get a market edge through having a brand i i think brand new zealand is a massive noose uh for our neck but i i know i stand alone on that argument when you have anyone talking about new zealand dot inc uh as as a as a brand for the cap for the world uh to the world i think that's um that's just a noose now that's true and you've got to be very careful with branding because um even though I said to Jasper, this is a walk down memory lane, we won't bring in anything new. But just look at Bud Light. You know, they they <laughs> had to they had to go through this, and we've spoken about this. Um, the ESG. You know, you don't get to get a bank loan, you don't get to export unless you meet your economic, social, and and governance goals. So Bud Light did that, and and they have lost. A billions in their share value and, and it's 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 there's no end in sight to it you know and and I think New Zealand farmers um have backed themselves a little bit into the corner with the ESGs because they have not stood up fast enough mm. I, you know I, and, and and we've we've warned a Jasper we have we've tried to put out the warning to to our New Zealand farmers to say you know that this is coming for you under these under these goals as per stuff Jill what we've tried to do is try to be relevant when the vaccine issue went <laughs> it is crazy the fact is we've never spoken about that but uh it's um this leads me into that email that popped from Fonterra today to Fonterra suppliers Fonterra is our biggest co-op dairy co-op yep. in New Zealand and yep. uh they had indicated last year that there'll be farm gate emissions now behind the farm gates so of farmers directly uh who will be having to account for them and pay for them this was last november the email today said that you know we had indicated and now we are going forward with it i'm reading yeah. out the email verbatim it says to recap at a high level we see four key reasons by fonterra needs fonterra farmers need to set and deliver on what's known as scope 3 targets one a strategic choice to be leaders in sustainability two retain our high value customers and access to markets three continued access to funding and capital for the co-op yep. and farmers and <clears throat> four increased legal and reporting obligations so not one of those is for climate and the booklet that came with it it spoke about access to funding and uh, fonterra rights banks insurers and financial institutions are beginning to request request details on the steps the co-op is taking to reduce its carbon footprint an example of this heightened focus is the fact that five of new zealand's key banks ag banks have signed up to the united nations net zero banking alliance requiring yep. them to set targets so to enable continued access to capital 
there's an opportunity to receive discounts and have low interest rates. That's ESG in action. Nowhere in that was it about saving the world. It is now the fact that you won't get funded. You won't have access to markets. Yeah. Your biggest customers, which are not mums and dads like all of us, it is the bigger corporates like Nestle and others holding yeah. us to virtually ransom. I don't. And, and remember too, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sneak in here, Don. Remember mm. too, Jasper, we we spoke about how this works through your council. Mm. So your council gets its funding through something called LGFA. And mm. LGFA, we and we've <clears throat> we've put up a slide about this. <clears throat> um, so we've been very open and honest about this, but LGFA will only fund your council if the council needs money for something that sits within these 17 sustainable development goals. So our, our councils have been hogtied exactly the same as our big industry is. And, and, and all of them are, are willingly going down that path. If you know, only and, and unfortunately they're taking us with them. <laughs> Well, look, it's around coercion, isn't it? I mean, uh, and that's the problem when you get dominance. Uh, I know Fonterra is losing. Uh, it hasn't got the dominance it once had. But when you do have dominance, you can basically dictate how things will be. And the test for me would be to have another uh, company say, we're not doing any of this. Uh, we're going to have mm -hmm. our suppliers do this unfettered by all these rules and regulations. And we're not going to bank with these people. We're going to do something different. I would Isn't like that to know. great? I, that's I, but great. I, but no, Jill, um, I'm not sure that's going to happen. That's mm -hmm. what I want to happen so that you've actually got a test that declares uh, one versus the other. Now, my guess is that for jumping all the hurdles, the the, the payout to a, to a supplier wouldn't be much different. If, mm. if not, it may even be better in the company that did nothing. Who knows? But we're yeah. not even allowed to do that test because of this argument that I've just posited before about New Zealand Incorporated. We all hunt as a pack. And I, I, yeah, people who know me know that I'm an absolute individual in my own area. I um, did my own uh, um, farming systems. I was quite successful for a long time with a um, high productivity sheep and, and uh, animals and farming system. But I didn't expect all my neighbours to do it. Uh, the saddest thing I did in my career was put all my animals in the same pot as everybody else's. I wish I hadn't. I wish I'd done my own provenance branding and um, been let, uh, let been the an market individual. decide. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but we love this. The farmers in New Zealand love the safety and and the numbers of a co-op. Now, I do understand how in the fifties, nineteen fifties, or or around that period, farmers were screwed by the the, the British companies that were owned, family-owned type companies, and that's why they formed co-ops. So, yeah, there's a there's a, there's a a mix required, and we just don't have that mix. I mean, for instance, what's Tartua doing? I imagine they're ticking the boxes and even putting higher credentials on their on their uh, products, maybe, right. yeah. I'm thinking, because they have a higher payout, and I've just shot myself in the foot. The, the, are they really, or are they just being genuine about their product management right through to the end uh rather than having to uh justify esgs and stuff like that i don't know um yeah i think i just have contradicted myself but i'd love to know the answer to all of that uh yeah. and i i did hear those bankers about a year ago talking about how um, you needed to be so uh so careful about your 
measurements on your farms to get this uh, supposed discount on your interest rates. Well, it won't be a discount. It'll be just the other people will be paying more. Uh, mm-hmm. Banks aren't good at giving discounted interest rates. Yep. So anyway, yep. Uh, it's it's where we are. Uh, it's, it's not ideal. Uh, and recessionary pressures just might might take the edge off all of the stuff. And when I read stuff online today, there's many companies say they're ticking all the boxes on their ESGs, but they're starting to be found out by the audits, so to speak, uh, of you know, the auditors of these ESGs. So, you know, it may all fall over. Hopefully it does, but we're a long way from that because there's well, so many, so many people yeah. feeding at the trough. There's so many people feeding at the trough of these things. When you look at anything online, there is event managers, there's all sorts of entities that just feed off all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's deep. It's a deep, it's a deep swamp. Jill. You know, right, right from the beginning, eh, Jasper, we 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 spoke about um, and I used to speak about this with the AAG, was the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project I always used to ask how many people knew, and I was always surprised at how few knew um, what it was. But, you know, just to, to recap really briefly, you know, thousands of people went to work every day, did their stuff for, the, you know, for two years or three years, whatever it was, and and went home and had their, their family time and their weekends. And very, very few of those thousands and thousands of people knew what the end result of their labour was. You know, and the end result of their labour was the the building, the testing, and then the using of the atomic bomb. You know, and and this is how <clears throat> this is how this whole thing is so layered um, that people think that they're doing the right thing. They're working in their department or their compartment, and they're doing what they're told to do, but they have no idea what their actual outcome is. Um, and and the, this is where this whole agenda. Um, both 21 and 30 is so nefarious because so many people have got no idea what the end result is going to be. And and it breaks my heart. They think they're doing the right thing, you know, and farmers sit at the at the computer for hours on end giving away data. Now data is gold. You should never give it away. You know, yep. and, and yet they do. And and data's been sucked out of our farmers and then it's been used against them on, on so many different layers and, and levels. And the end result is really bad. I I can hear the passion in your voice, Jill, and it's no wonder that uh, you and I bonded over this. And yeah, it's it's certainly been a very interesting two years. And I have no doubt as this year goes on, there's going to be a whole lot more coming on down the pipeline. For anybody who's just joined us, this is uh, this was Jill Booth from Central Otago. Valley, Tevyat Valley, and Tevye Valley. And Jill and I have done a whole series of uh, year and a half worth of webinars on Voices for Freedom's website about the Sustainable Development Goals. And we just thought it is uh, a good time to sort of let people know where we all came from before we found this particular forum. Thank you so much for your time today, Jill. I have no doubt we'll have you back on. And, um, You're welcome. Thank you. It's, it's been fun, Jasper, and and I just want to remind people that, um, you know, when we started these webinars, the very first slide that came up was a was one of a Medusa, um, <laughs> a woman 
<clears throat> with a single neck, but a but a head of many snakes, snakes, and um, you know, and that's what we've got coming for us. We've got these all of these snakes coming out from this agenda, but it has got one neck, and and that's um, really what we need to go for, you know. And we've spoken about that quite often, you know, quite openly down our, you know, yeah. through our through our webinars. So thank you, thank you, Don. We'll catch up again and um, catch you later. Absolutely. And for listeners, our uh, number to text is 2057. Don and I will be back in a moment. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet on Greenwashed. Remember to give your feedback, uh, email inbox at reality check.radio or text 2057. Your feedback's most welcome. Now, you may wonder why we preface this uh, section with the song you've just heard from the Amoeba people. It will become pretty obvious in a moment because we're, we've got a very well-known geologist on. And I've come up with this uh, line from Will Durant. He said civilization occurs with geological with geological consent, subject to change without notice. Now, I think we've got the ultimate uh, guest on here today, Dr. Uh, Professor Ian Plymer from Adelaide. Welcome, Ian. Um, Thank welcome you for having Reality me. Check, Reality Check Radio. Um, we think this is a coup, a scoop. So, uh, you know, I'll let Jaspreet, uh give a bit more about your credentials, and then you well, can let, let, let me just Let me just comment on that uh, Durant quote. I've often thought that the only way the Wallabies are going to win a game against the All Blacks is for geology to take place, to have a massive <laughs> super volcano in New Zealand, because we're not going to win it any other way. <laughs> well, I'm not so sure. Things are getting more even each year. Um, um, I'm a bit more worried that we get wine as good as Australians, Clear Valley or Barossa or something. We're getting oh, close, look, I think. I'm a Pinot Noir drinker, and I, I drink your Otago Pinot Noirs all the time. I won't touch the Australian stuff. Your Pinot Noir is a little bit softer than the stuff from the Yarra Valley or from where I am in South Australia where we grow some good wines or the Tasmanian uh, Pinot Noir. So... Um, New Zealand wines are very popular in Australia. Oh, very good. And uh, I can vouch for that. Uh, Central Otago Pinot's just as good as it gets. Anyway, no. just pray. We'll I can, I can also, I can also vouch for the Central Otago wines, though I'm more a sour drinker. And with that opening from Ian, I like the way this is going already, but I'll just get <laughs> the formal introductions uh, in. Professor Ian Plymer is probably Australia's best known geologist. He is Emeritus Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, where he was Professor and Head of Earth Sciences from 1991 to 2005. Prior to that, Ian was at the University of Newcastle as Professor and Head of Geology. He was also Professor of Mining Geology at the University of Adelaide from 2006 to 2012 on the staff of University of New England, the University of New South Wales, Macquarie University. He's published more than 120 scientific papers on geology and was one of the trinity of editors for the five-volume Encyclopedia of Geology. I will leave it at that, Ian, and let you do the honors because I could go on and on here. Thank you so much for having us, uh, joining us today. 
Well, it's an absolute pressure uh, because I didn't say pressure, did I? I said pleasure, I think, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) I've always been interested in the way this planet works and I can look at the the countryside, read the land, I can look at a tile in a bathroom and it tells a story. And as humans, we are hardwired to tell stories. And the story of this planet is absolutely fantastic. And what children are being told in schools about how there's one trace gas that drives a major planetary process and we're all doomed, this this gas is actually plant food. This gas is the reason we can live. And these children are missing out on the absolute excitement of science. And in my field, I need to talk to physicists. I need to talk to astronomers, I need to talk to chemists, I need to talk to biologists to put together the complete story and the history of the planet. And there's some wonderful questions you can ask. You could ask a question like, well, when did it first rain on planet Earth? And that's not a question about rain. That actually, if you follow it through to the logical conclusion, is a question about the evolution of life. You can ask questions about extinctions. Yes, we, we've had major mass extinctions on planet Earth, but we've had uh, over 20 minor mass extinctions, and extinction is with us all the time. We're getting species turn over all the time and come and go. And we're getting an increase in species, even though we're getting species go extinct. So there are some wonderful problems that are intellectual problems, but they're also practical problems. Where do we find oil? How do we find it? Oil formed in one place and moves to another. Um, how can we predict what's happened and where it's gone? So I find this complete understanding of the planet is really quite exhilarating. And for 250 years, geologists have been writing about climate change. All the textbooks are full of material about climate change. And then fairly recently, we have these Johnny-come-latelys come along and tell us that there is a, a discipline called climate change and we've all got to be worried about climate change. We've had these battles in geology 250 years ago where the surface deposits on Europe and Ireland and England were great boulders and one of the theories was that this was from a war between trolls chucking boulders at each other. Another was that it was <laughs> a remnant from the Noah's great flood. Another was that this was left behind by retreating ice. And these were strong arguments going on in the 1700s. And it was then that geologists realised that, wait a minute, Europe must have been covered in ice. And French geologists working in the Paris Basin saw fossils of tropical plants and tropical animals and came to the conclusion, hang on a tick, It must have been tropical here once. And, of course, the great discovery was finding fossil alligators in the Arctic. So geologists have known for a long while that climates change, and they change for many, many reasons. Uh, They can change because we've got a bad address. A continent might drift across a pole. It can change because... We have um, a pulling apart of a continent or stitching back together of continents, and this changes the way heat is distributed around the Earth on ocean currents. Uh, climates can very easily change if 
if we have a change in solar activity, if we have a change in the orbital activity, if we have uh, cosmic radiation hitting us from some supernova eruption way out there, we've known this for more than 100 years. We've known that the Earth orbit changes and gets us closer or further to the sun. And closer, we're warmer, further away, we're cooler. And we've known this for over 100 years, yet all of a sudden we get told that the whole reason for climate change is due to humans pumping out traces of plant food into the atmosphere. So the ultimate climate scientists are the geologists. The ultimate understanding of the planet comes from geology, which integrates all the sciences. So this is why I'm fascinated in the way the planet works. And it's dynamic. And you know this in New Zealand. You've got earthquakes, you've got volcanoes, you've got sea levels going up and down, you've got land levels going up and down. This is quite normal in the history of the planet. And geologists have always thought the planet was dynamic, whereas we had creationists who say, oh, yes, the planet was static until we humans came along. We have the climate scientists or the really activists telling us that the planet is, is static until we started to change the climate. And this is a major planetary process. Traces of a trace gas going to the atmosphere cannot change a major planetary process. Oh, and, but sorry to interrupt, but legislation can, surely. Legislation doesn't <laughs> control how the Earth's <laughs> orbit works or how much energy comes from the sun. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the legislators um, are fairly ignorant people, um, especially the lawyers in Parliament. Uh, they do not know how to use evidence, uh, and these are lawyers. and. The legislators and the bureaucracy are actually political activists. They have no knowledge at all about how the planet works. They don't care if they put a farmer out of work. They don't care if they destroy a factory by legislating for certain procedures. So um, in many ways, if we had government get out of the way, we'd be in a much better position. Here, here to that. Um, interestingly, uh, you, you talk about the evolution of stuff. Um, was CO2 even around at the start of 4.6 billion years ago, do you think? was Did it exist? Oh, that is a very profound question. And it requires a long answer. This oh. planet has been degassing ever since it formed on that Thursday, 4,567 <laughs> million years ago. <laughs> and it's been degassing. And water vapor and carbon dioxide and other minor gases. Its first atmosphere was rich in ammonia, was rich in methane, rich in carbon monoxide, which is quite poisonous. Um, it was a reducing atmosphere, and that was around for about a thousand million years. And in that atmosphere, which was hot and chemically very different from today's atmosphere, we actually had life appear. And I go back to a statement I made earlier about when did it first rain. As soon as we see evidence of old gravels and old sands in Western Greenland, we can conclude that there must have been running water and therefore we must have had rain. And if you dissolve up those rocks and uh, look at the residue that's left behind, there's about a teaspoon of grey muck as the residue and you don't see any fossils. But when you look at this chemically, it's got the chemical fingerprint of life and it's got the chemical fingerprint of carbon compounds that don't form in outer space but are associated with life. 
So this tells us that life can exist in very, very hostile conditions. And we know that this primitive bacterial life can live in hot conditions, cold conditions, can live in the ice, can live in clouds, can live in acid conditions, alkaline conditions, the bottom of the sea and the top of the atmosphere. So very early life, we had a, a pretty hostile atmosphere and it started to change. As carbon dioxide kept being released from the earth, and you release it mainly when you pull apart parts of the surface of the earth and our second atmosphere in the earth was a carbon dioxide rich atmosphere it had up to 20 percent carbon dioxide whereas the current atmospheric carbon dioxide content is 0.04 percent we had up to 20 percent carbon dioxide and yet during that period of time we had ice ages we had one two three four ice ages during that period of time when we had a very, very high carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. So the past is telling us that carbon dioxide is not driving global warming. And then we had a remarkable event. We had a couple of goes trying to start this event of the appearance of multicellular life. We had multicellular life appear but just after a big glaciation event called the um, Maranoan, uh, sorry, the Sturgeon, and then after that, we had shallow marine life appear as reefs. And then we had another ice age, and this was a Maranoan, and that wiped out that life. Sea levels dropped about 600 metres. And we had another go at forming multicellular life, and that was the Ediacara. And they appeared 583 million years ago, again on a Thursday. It's quite incredible. And that multicellular life was was soft shell. It didn't have any um, skeletons. They were chordates. Some of them were chordates. Some of them were your primitive ancestors. But that life started to suck carbon dioxide out of the water, which had come from the atmosphere, and to build shells and to build limestone reefs and to build skeletons. And at that period of time, we started to sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to give us our third atmosphere, which is an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And we've been pulling carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere now for over 500 million years. We now are at a stage in the atmosphere where we are dangerously low. If we halve the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that would kill off all plant life. Now, of course, the good news about that is that the vegans would go first, but the meat eaters would follow very <laughs> soon after because uh, and meat eaters eat plants. So um, if we have another three glaciations and we're just coming out of an interglacial into another glaciation, another three of those, and we'll have the carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere so low that this will be dangerous for all life on Earth. And I argue very strongly that we picked on the wrong gas uh, the main greenhouse gas is water vapour. Um, secondly, we picked on the food of life as the gas we want to destroy and sequester and lock away. We should be concerned that we have such a low carbon dioxide content because it does the planet good. And we've seen that in the last 40 years. We had a very slight increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. We've seen a greening of the deserts. We've had better crop yields. That's partly due to the aerial fertilisation of carbon dioxide, but it's partly due to GM crops. It's partly due to better fertilisers and it's partly due to better farming practices. So the third atmosphere has had a decrease in carbon dioxide and it's been decreasing enormously. 
and it's an oxygen-rich atmosphere. So like life, like the rocks, like the planet, the atmosphere also evolves. And that evolution very much drives the evolution of life and the evolution of oceans. And so you just can't pick on one thing, the gas carbon dioxide, and say, oh, it's affecting the whole planet. All these cycles are working together and they're working hand in hand and you have to look at the complete picture. And this is why geology is so wonderful because to calculate what these past atmospheres did, you have to get outside and if you want to measure how much carbon dioxide was in a past atmosphere, you've got to walk a lot of miles, measure how much dolomite you walk over and dolomite's a solid rock but it's got 48% carbon dioxide in that rock. You measure it, you assume it, say, goes down to 10 kilometres depth. You can then calculate the volume of carbon dioxide that we did to make, make that rock, and that came from the atmosphere. And then you go to the laboratory and you make carbon dioxide um, from dolomite. You then go to the laboratory and you make dolomite. And so from the experiments and from measurements out in the bush, you can work out how much carbon dioxide was once in the atmosphere. So I find, I find this integration of science is very, very interesting, where most of your climate activists or climate scientists are just mathematicians. They have no knowledge of integrated interdisciplinary science and they have no knowledge of what's happening planetary-wise in the past, which leads into the present. And we can only start understand the present if we understand the past. So. I, I would argue that, uh, well, posit now that that's case over, case closed, job's done, all the climate activists and everyone can go home and all the legislators can close their books and uh, retire and we just move on. But that's not what we're going to be allowed to do. Well, well to, to add to that, we then should stop funding people to do climate science research. They've done their job. Thank you very much. You've ruined the planet. Um, go away. But these people are imminently unemployable. They're, these people, if they couldn't be in some institution frightening us witless um, about something that's going to happen in hundreds of years' time, they would have no job. That's mm, a common theme, and, and some parts of our show, actually, uh, based on my background, that's definitely the case that I put up. Interestingly, uh, is it ever possible, do you think, to isolate human-enhanced uh, CO2 in the atmosphere from uh, the what rest. would have been there naturally? Yeah. Is well, that again is a very, very good question. I argue that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. I've asked scientists for it, they've obfuscated. I've asked journalists for the information and they've abused me. I've asked activists for the information and they've abused me, but I still have not got half a dozen credible scientific papers that show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Now, if you could, if you could show that, you'd also have to show that the natural emissions of carbon dioxide don't drive global warming, and that's only 97% of the total. And you would have to show um, that all the emissions from degassing of the oceans, uh, from volcanoes, submarine volcanoes and basalt volcanoes, and from exhalation from mammals, you would have to show that that um, has no effect. Now, the way in which these calculations are done, and they're very complicated calculations, there's not an actual measurement that's done. It's a deduction mm. based on the amount of carbon, uh, a lighter carbon and a slightly heavier carbon, 
and with one form of carbon preferentially used by trees and another form um, that isn't. And so you measure that proportion in the atmosphere. But what it doesn't tell us is that there are natural emissions of biological carbon from the lungs of the planet. Uh, there are natural emissions of carbon dioxide and methane that come out of the tundra. There are natural emissions that come out of natural forest fires and tundra fires. We also hear about the lungs of the earth being the rainforest of Brazil. Well, that's just absolute bullshit. Um, the oxygen that's released out of the rainforest in Brazil, most of that is used by the rainforest bacteria to chew up leaves and twigs and wood um, in the decomposition of material on the floor of the forest. The lungs of the earth are the phytoplankton, the floating algal material in the oceans. That's the lungs of the earth. But, of course, we never consider those things. So all of those change. The proportion of the light and the heavy carbon in carbon dioxide, and I very strongly question the measurements that are made, how they're made, and um, of course, what is ignored. And in science, if someone measures something, you have to ask some fundamental questions who measured it? What was the equipment that was used to measure it? What is the order of accuracy? What results were rejected? What res results were accepted? Are there any other possible measurements that might have a bearing on this? And when you ask all of those questions, these measurements of, of light and heavy carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, don't pass those simple scientific tests. So no. I'm very sceptical that we can actually find a fingerprint of human carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, completely. And, you know, as, as you were speaking, Ian, and for our listeners, we are speaking to Ian Plymer, Australian geologist. I of trying to isolate. I'm a dairy farmer and also a counsellor here in Southland, not far from Dawn. And my daughter the other day, she's eight, she bought the globe to me. And, you know, I've been trying to get her to memorize the different oceans. So she knows the continents. These are the oceans. And she said, why do I need to memorize these names? I said, well, which where, where are you going? She says, it's all the same water. You're just calling it different names in different places, isn't it? <laughs> I had I had never thought of it that way. But she actually made me think like this because, you know, I'm 44, I'm showing my age, and you were taught to learn the continents and oceans. But I'll now go to your book, Ian Greenwood. Can I just, com just, can I just comment on that? Because that, that mm -hmm. was a fascinating question from a child. Um, these oceans are connected, and at times the connections are greater um, than um, at other times. About uh, two and a half million years ago, we had North America and South America join at Panama. And so we stopped the circulation of water from the Pacific into the Atlantic. As a result of that, we stopped the transfer of heat from one ocean to the other. As a result of that, mm. we had a cooling event. And coincidentally, we had a cosmic eruption, a supernova eruption that bombarded us with cosmic rays, which form more clouds, so it gets cooler, we get more precipitation, and that was when we started to get ice form on Greenland. So um, by stopping the oceans connect, we actually changed climate. Go back a bit further. South America was once joined to Antarctica. 
And we were nice and warm and jolly and we had uh, a lot of connection of warm tropical waters coming north and coming south and keeping the Arctic and the Antarctic warm. And when South America started to pull away from Antarctica, we set up a circumpolar current around Antarctica. The warm water couldn't get there. It started to freeze. That was 34 million years ago. And over the last 34 million years, we've had ice that has expanded. That's a glaciation. And ice that's contracted, and that's an interglacial. We are actually in an ice age. And until we can move Antarctica off the South Pole, we will stay in that ice age. We could change things very easily. For example, if in the Bering Strait we had the land rise a little bit, and it is rising, and we mm -hmm. closed off water going from the North Pacific into the Arctic, we would freeze the Arctic very quickly because that North Pacific water is bringing heat into the Arctic. So the oceans drive the climate. Water holds more heat than air. And you can do the experiment of home. Mm. Run a bath and the bathroom gets quite hot. Do the opposite. Have a, a bath of cold water and have a radiator in there. The water doesn't warm up. Water is a, has a high heat capacity. And so you can move heat around the earth in water and that changes your climate. So your daughter was very, very profound in her comments, which was um, really quite interesting that she's asking those sort of questions. Yeah, why, why should she learn? But I'll, I'll come to your book now, Ian, Green Murder. And I will hark back to uh, comments from politicians in uh, my motherland, India. And we had our power minister in India speak late last year. And he said that there is no way that we are going to reduce the construction of power plants because he said, I cannot, and I cannot compromise India's, it is they are hitting three big states, which are also our manufacturing hubs. And he says, we simply can't afford that. Yet, when I come out here, you know, not just New Zealand, I look at any Western country, we have politicians hell-bent upon destroying their own economies. And I mean, New Zealand is no different. We were quoted a figure recently by an eminent guest who came here saying that there's figures being thrown around of something like 500 billion in New Zealand to electrify everything, keeping in mind our GDP is just over 350 billion. And no one, no one seems to blink an eyelid. What's going on here? How hard is it to do simple maths? Oh, God, this is a, this, that's an interesting and difficult question. Uh, I spent a lot of my time working in the third world, in Africa and uh, South America, and they, they're not having connections about global warming. They're not shutting down their power systems. I do a lot of work in Asia, and the same thing, and you quoted India, which is now the biggest um, country in the world. Now, India's got some very, very good coal deposits, but they're inland, mm. and they need the railway systems to take them to the coast where all the manufacturing is. So... They are um, exploiting Australian coals. It's easier to get a coal from Australia to the coast of India than mm. it is from a coal inland in India to the coast of India. Now, India is not stupid, nor is China. They know that the Western world, especially the Anglosphere, had a great industrial revolution. It mm. was driven by coal. That industrial revolution brought people out of poverty 
That industrial revolution gave us the middle class. That industrial revolution stopped poverty. That industrial revolution made medicine more freely available. That industrial revolution, driven by coal, made travel easy. And so the evolving world, countries in South America, India, China, Southeast Asia, they are not going to stop their countries growing to becoming as comfortable as Western countries. Now, in the West, we are extraordinarily wealthy. People don't realise it, but you, you travel a bit to some of the absolute cesspits of the world, and we are so incredibly wealthy. And what I think has been happening is that over the last 20 years, we have been attacking every major institution. We've been attacking politics, the universities, the schools and the churches. But the Western countries have got residual Christianity. And with that residual, residual Christianity, you have guilt. Uh, you pay penance. Uh, you can buy your way out of hell. Uh, and that's what's happening. People, I think, are feeling guilty that per capita they use a lot more energy. They're feeling guilty that they're wealthy. And the only thing you can do when you're wealthy, if you're not careful, is to blow that money. And so they are blowing money, um, beating their chest and trying to get to the impossible dream of net zero. That destroys an economy. They um, pay their indulgences. They have their high priests. They have their holy book, which no one ever reads. Um, <laughs> and so I think this is a characteristic of, the Christian Western world, especially the Anglosphere. So who are the um, the high priests? Who are the, the uh, perpetrators of this uh, new virtuous uh, uh, behaviour? Oh, well, when you look around the world at those who've made a mozza out of this, it's people like Al Gore or Klaus Schwab. Um, Al, Al Gore has made billions out of, out of frightening people witless, and you have to remember how his family um, got their wealth. And it was for having smelters um, for the lead zinc deposits, um, zinc smelters in Mississippi, Kentucky, and, and these areas of the tri-state where lead and zinc has been mined. So actually, they actually made their money out of, out of putting crap into the atmosphere. And now they're going around um, in their private jets, of course, um, in and living in their waterfront houses, telling us that we should have a sackcloth and ashes. Now, that just doesn't wash. If you are very serious about net zero, I will listen to you and I will come to the entrance of your cave after five consecutive days when it snowed, you haven't been able to hunt and gather anything, and you can tell me about the benefits of net zero. Well, I've got this um, comment to that, that NZ is net zero. That's what it stands for, NZ. So that's New Zealand. <laughs> and that also is New Zimbabwe. So we're NZ to the power of three if we if we go down this route. But that's my private opinion, of course. Well, uh, there might be some good news there. You need someone to do the sums. I did the sums in Australia. Uh, did the sums of how much carbon dioxide is released from factories, from our mines, from our smelters, from our farms. And then I looked at how much we absorb in our grasslands, in our crops, in our forests, in our rangelands, and in the continental shelf area where um, carbon dioxide dissolves in the water. And in Australia, we 
emit one-tenth of what we absorb. So we are already at net zero. And I suspect that New Zealand, with its low population and a pretty large continental shelf, it would have a similar sort of figure. I think so too. Uh, of course, we've got this dumb nonsense uh, called GWP, Global Warming Potential for Methane and Nitrous Oxide, which uh, they say makes up 50% of our inventory. Now, even by talking like this, I'm sort of falling into the uh, pit that says that uh, this is all relevant. But that's where we are today in uh, 50%, 48-50% of New Zealand's inventory is from agricultural emissions from methane, nitrous oxide and the like. And so uh, it's convenient to whip uh, about 60,000 businesses in New Zealand into line. Uh, it's, a, it's convenient to import coal from Indonesia in this country instead of um, really digging it out ourselves because we've got plenty. Uh, and it's convenient for the politicians to play all these cards against us. So when well, I see let, the let, likes let me of- just make a couple of comments on that. Um, the main greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is water vapour, about 90% of the temperature effects in the atmosphere are due to water vapour. The second major greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide and way down the list of methane and nitrogen compounds, et cetera. The second thing is that New Zealand coals, especially West Coast, South Island coals, are some of the cleanest coals in the world. They are fabulous quality coals. By contrast, the Indonesian coal that you're bringing in is high ash and high sulphur. That's not doing the environment any good at all. Burn your own coals. They're great coals. They're highly desired around the world. And the third thing is you can do the mass balance calculations, and if you're a dairy farmer or a um, a beef farmer, do the sums. Grass uses a certain amount of carbon dioxide to grow, and the cattle will eat that grass. And some of that will be converted into carbon compounds, which ends up as dung, so that um, stays in the soil. Some of it is belched out as methane. Some of it is farted out as methane and carbon dioxide. Then that meat is eaten, and that meat and goes into some of my body tissue and stays there for a long time. And some of the tissue from the beef is used for leather, and that's pulling carbon out of the system for a long period of time. Mm. So if you've got grass-fed cattle, they're actually sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, into meat, uh, into dung, into leather. It's actually a process that's good for the environment. And it is an attack by city-based people who have no idea where their food, fibre and energy come from. They are attacking the productive end of society. And what we have is non-producers in the bureaucracy imposing regulations on people who produce. And that is the problem we've got. This is massive disconnect between um, the primary producers and the people sitting in cities. Ian, I, you've spent your much of your life in academia and you've managed to hold on to those positions and I'm listening to you the way you talk very straight and I wonder how you've managed to survive there. But just out of, out of interest, how well does this book of yours do? How to get expelled from school? A guide to climate <laughs> change for pupils, parents and punters. Well, the first climate <laughs> book I put out was called Heaven and Earth and that was almost an encyclopedia. Yeah. 
And that book sold internationally 140,000, 150,000 copies, and that's a big seller. And after that, I had many people saying, oh, there's too much science and I can't understand it. So I thought, well, I'll write a book for school kids. And I called it How to Get Expelled from School. And I had 101 questions that kids would ask their teacher, special questions for Friday afternoon, say get kicked out and get home early. <laughs> and I had the Government of Australia set up a website uh, with taxpayers' money attacking me and trying to answer these 101 questions. But I posed the question such that it was almost impossible to answer those questions um, unless, of course, you spoke the truth and used facts. And then I put out another book after that. The Pope put out an encyclical. My publisher's a good God-fearing Catholic. He said, could you write a few thousand words as a, as a criticism of the papal encyclical? Well, that ended up as a book. Uh, heaven and Hell, and that went to a few countries around the world. Then I had another book about the great electricity ripoff and showing how a ruinable power, uh, wind and solar, and uh, actually runs up your electricity costs, how the only thing renewable about wind and solar is the subsidies. They get renewed every year. <laughs> and I just looked at the costs that you are paying for your electricity for these stupid policies. And then I had um, a book called uh, Not for Greens. And this is where I looked at how much energy is used to make a teaspoon, how much you have to do to mine the iron and the coal to make the steel. Then you have to mine the chromium, beneficiate it, alloy it with the steel. Then you've got to mine and beneficiate nickel ores, alloy that with the steel, and maybe throw in a bit of molybdenum and tin. And I went through the whole process of the energy budget to make a teaspoon to feed yourself. And I was only talking to a chap yesterday, and he was he was telling me, look, my son was a good lefty. He read that book, and it completely changed his view. And the latest book, Green Murder, is that I'm arguing that Green policies are killing people. They're killing people in terms of diet, in terms of energy, uh, and in terms of their economic survival. I have coming out in the middle of August a book for children, and this book's called The Little Green Book. And I have the right. first section for seven-year-old kids, and seven-year-olds love to know about poo and farts and vomit and things like this, and I'm tying all this into the carbon cycle. And the second part is for 12-year-olds where you can use more sophisticated arguments about mm. how the planet works. And the last part, uh, I'm trying to uh, create turbulence with 16-year-olds. Uh, just deal with the dogma and then show the data. You work out whether you want to be saving the planet or whether you're actually enriching someone. And that book, uh, Little Green Book, I'm uh, hoping to get the ghost of Marzi Tong endorse it. Uh, similar to his little red book. That's uh, coming out in mid-August. It's actually a book not for kids to read because kids don't read. Um, it's up to the parents and the grandparents mm. to read these sort of books to them. And I've written the early part of it in the style of horrible histories, which if yeah. some of you are out there and have got, well, your eight-year-old probably knows horrible histories. I mean, they, yes. These are gruesome stories about um amputations and the stewards and things the like murderous this. roms and whatnot yep. oh yeah and 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 kids love those sort of things so i've tried to get into the head of my grandkids and um 
how my kids were and write it such that we can start from the bootstraps up. So that's the answer to a question that I've totally forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> now we were talking about how well that book had done, oh, but I see this, the little green book is now you're talking about that coming in. I'm yes. hoping, Ian, you're going to send a copy of that to the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. They are now talking about needing strong leadership for mental health of the youth who are feeling crippled by eco-anxiety. Yeah. And I, I have noticed, I have never been on Twitter, but, you know, there's other social media channels. And a few years ago, say when they were starting about 15 years ago, these were usually for influencers who would be, you know, I don't know, selling makeup, hairstyles and whatnot. And now we have young people pushing austerity. Yes. Talking about how less they have flown, talking yeah. about, you know, the carbon footprints and my bike and my EV and whatnot. With your background in geology, you and you have traveled so much. Where is the raw materials for most of our EVs mined today? Which which countries and what are the labor practices like there? Well, if you're driving an electric vehicle, you are mm. using graphite. Um some of that might come from China or Sri Lanka or Madagascar mm -hmm. um, or various parts of Transvaal in South Africa, uh, maybe a little bit from Australia. Mm -hmm. You're also using copper. Uh, most of the world's copper comes from Chile. Um, there's a lot that comes out of um, North America, Poland, uh, China, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, a little bit now out of Europe. So you use a lot of graphite, you use a lot of copper, you also use nickel. And most of the world's nickel, about 65% of the world's nickel, comes from tropical areas where it is concentrated by the weathering of nickel-bearing rocks and you concentrate a layer of nickel-rich material at the bottom of the soil profile. So you clean off this whole soil profile, collect the nickel minerals. Now, if you're in a a country with um, that's a charming country in terms of legislation like Cuba, then you walk away and leave the mess. And New Caledonia's got a similar mess. Other countries, you have to rehabilitate it. I'm not so sure about what happens in Indonesia. So um, you actually have to clear rainforests to create nickel. The cobalt for your electric vehicle, 90% of it comes from black children who are slaves okay underground in mines in the Congo. These kids die of cobalt poisoning. These kids get killed underground. These kids get whipped and beaten to produce cobalt, which goes straight to the Chinese buyers, which then goes into making the main parts. And as we now know, the biggest car manufacturer in the world is China. The biggest electric vehicle manufacturer in the world is China. And we tried electric vehicles in the 1830s and they failed. We tried them in the early 1900s and they failed. But I can tell you now, 97% of all electric vehicles that have been made recently are still on the road. The other 3% got home. <laughs> well, it's interesting there. I mean, the evolution of uh, ideas is always around us, hopefully, and thankfully. Uh, and I note the other day that uh, I think it's Tesla has developed a uh, early stages of a silicon-based battery. Uh, so it's going to have a whole lot more capacity with hopefully a whole lot less of these rare uh, commodities like cobalt and copper, hopefully. Don't don't know that for sure. But isn't it interesting? You're talking about so much 
positive stuff, really, when you analyze it. And yet we've got these people that want to put all this uh, negative stuff in front of us. And it's sort of an arrogance of the last 30 or my adult life where we're trying to turn back the clock. And I've, I want your opinion on the, on the term consensus science. The consensus in science is, uh, I read it that it's, it's sort of a fabrication. It's a, it's a almost a, uh, a way of deflecting the argument. Um, science doesn't work by consensus, does it? Well, 97% of scientists agree with whomsoever funds them. That's the consensus. And if you're funded by a government that has a political position, then as a scientist to continue to get funding, you agree with the government. And these are the scientists who are eminently unemployable outside institutions. Science is based on evidence. In science, we are married to evidence, which you get from experiment, from measurement and observation. Um, and um, that experiment or measurement and observation um, has to be repeated time and time and time again until you're comfortable that you've got no mistakes in measurement or no mistakes in observation. And then you try to explain that, and that's called your scientific theory. And I know from my life in science at conferences you get cliques and clans of people who support one idea and those who support another idea, and they're at war all the time. There has never been consensus in science, and science doesn't work on consensus. Science works on criticism. That uh, science, um, a good scientist has to be sceptical, sceptical of everything. If someone says that the planet is warming, a good scientist will say, oh, that's interesting, show me. So that's tying it to evidence. Science is married to evidence. It's not married to the political policy of the day. It's not married to ideology. And we've got one very good ident uh, uh, past um, experience with this with Lysenko. Now, Lysenko was a Russian peasant in Stalinist times, and he did think that genetics could create better yields because, of course, this is creating one variety better than another. That's against communist principles. That's exactly what you have in capitalism with excellence being revered. He thought that you could actually have all the plants the same. You could train them up um, to produce better in colder conditions or wetter conditions. And that led to massive famines, especially in the Ukraine, and the Russian was quite happy to have these famines in the Ukraine. And there are about 35 million people that died from starvation, from the scientific policy that was demonstrably wrong. If you were a geneticist in the Soviet Union, Stalin had you sent to the gulags. Many of these people got assassinated. And it wasn't until 1956, which was three years after Stalin died, that Lysenko got sacked. So you can still see evidence of that today. I remember in the late 70s, I travelled from Soviet Karelia um, out of um, Leningrad across into Finland, into Lapinrata into Finland. Same soil, same language, same climate. The wheat on the Soviet side was about 15 centimetres high and on the Finnish side was about a metre high. And that was genetics. 
And even after Lysenko died, the whole agricultural practices in the Soviet Union have been put backwards and people have died. Now, this is what we're seeing now, an attack on agriculture where we must reduce nitrogen emissions, methane emissions and carbon dioxide emissions. What will happen is food prices go up, farmers will go broke, farmers will commit suicide, um, and people may well starve in some parts of the world. So we've seen it before. I don't know why we don't learn from this history. Well, and certainly I'd read that passage in your book, uh, Heaven and Earth, uh, about Lysenko, and we had a clip of uh, his his output a few uh, weeks ago on the show. So it was it was new to me then, and uh, rereading it from you and confirming that was was something useful to me as a farmer. I was not aware of it before, but we've had these sort of tyrants all through history. When you analyse it, I dare say, uh, how are we going to uh, take the narrative back and have a positive future for? our children. Uh, we, we don't need any more of the Greta file type uh, eco-anxiety. How are we going to take this narrative back? Because that's that's the, that's the problem we're all facing. Aside from big taxes, how are we going to beat it? Over the last couple of thousand years, we've been led by emperors and kings and tyrants and despots. And it's only been a very short period of time where we've had democratically elected governments. And everyone has these thoughts every now and then. If I was king of the world, this is what I'd do. And that always has a twinge of authoritarianism about it, a twinge of tyrannical uh, behaviour about it. So it's a very human thing to be a tyrant. It's a very human thing uh, to absolutely and totally dominate. So how are we going to take it back? Well, we have a democratic process and what... I have seen with some statistics over the weekend is that those on the right, those people who are very busy producing, those people who might be out on the farm all day, those people who might be working in a factory are not very politically active. It's those who are sitting around twiddling their thumbs, getting paid by the state, they're the ones who are politically active. And so I think the best way to address this is to become extremely politically active, to be heard, be seen. You might write letters to the newspaper. Well, one in a hundred will get published, but that's fine. Keep it up. Don't get disappointed. Um, talk to people. And when I'm at a supermarket, I might say to the checkout lady, I might comment on the weather and I'll wind that into global warming. I will all the time engage people in conversation. Um, today, I, I travelled by plane from Canberra to Adelaide. That's about an hour and 45 minutes. A bloke next to me, I was talking to about the carbon dioxide emissions coming out of that engine and um, what good it's doing for the planet. He'd not heard that view before. And I think you've just got to be an activist, but an activist for positive things. Oh, we're not ruining the world. I mean, the, the activists on the other side are telling us the world is being ruined. And I think a good news story can be easily sold. So you have, you have to join political parties. You have to get heard. You have to do exactly what you're doing with this broadcast. Yeah, and, and so on that, uh, you, you talk about the book that you're doing for juniors, uh, the two books. That The concern I have in the New Zealand curriculum, the books I've seen or the, the, the data that I've seen is so biased. It's going to be very hard to get a books that you put up 
into the schools and into the minds of, of New Zealanders because we have administrators that just just try to uh, deflect uh, what's honest and, uh, uh, and and not it might just challenge the narrative that's constantly been coming at them for 30 years or 20 or 30 years. So I think we're going to have to watch that, Jaspreet, uh, how Ian's mm-hmm. books are... Uh, uh, um, Let me give you a few fundamentals here. I'm regarded as controversial because I speak the truth and I use facts. That in today's world is controversial. If you get a kid at a school, want to write an essay, be it about republicanism or be it about um, the royal family, be it about religion, the flag or climate, if they don't write the party line, they get marked down. And the kids are realising that I've got to write this story. Now, we are teaching a generation of people that the only way to be successful is to tell lies. And that's why this book is written for parents and grandparents. I know kids won't read it. Kids don't read much at all. Uh, But we are now in a a moral crisis, and this is why I attack the morals of the other side a lot in Green Murder. We are in a moral crisis. We are teaching children to be liars. And the only way to survive in this, this world is to teach is to lie. When I was a kid, if you did something wrong, if you told a lie about it, you got belted even more. You got belted for doing something wrong. But if you told a lie about it, that was it. You really got belted. Now, we're teaching the exact opposite. And I think that's absolutely tragic. Some kids wake up to it. I think there are more kids wake up to it than we'd like to admit. And it's it's very encouraging. And I've often talked to young kids. I had a 13-year-old the other day and I want to use him in a sequence of television programs, just terrific. He's got a really inquiring mind. And they just don't accept all the stuff given by their teachers, but they know that they have to present the party line. And that's terrible. Yeah, it was interesting how Greta Thunberg got all the airtime and a young lady called Naomi Seibt uh, from... Uh, somewhere like Germany, Germany. Uh, was yeah. was pretty much silenced after a bit. She just uh, got harangued and harassed, and uh, I haven't seen her name up rising up for a long time from for her positing of a different view. So, yeah, it's interesting how uh, the brainwashing uh, has got through uh, using. Well, Greta. Greta Thunberg was trying to claim that her childhood was destroyed. She'd made millions for her parents, who were activists. Uh, she didn't go to school. She claimed her childhood was destroyed. And I've got some pictures in this uh, next book showing young kids, younger than her, working in mines, working in sweatshops, making clothing, uh, working in rice paddies. She's claiming as a very rich Western child that her childhood was destroyed. Get real. Go and look, go and look at kids in India or, or Chad or Mauritania, some of these parts of the world. So this is something that has to be pushed home. Kids are idealistic and it has to be put in a perspective that they are very, very well off. That doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. You have to be eternally vigilant and be concerned about the real issues and the real issues are probably not climate at all. Um, in your country and in my country, it's about the feral animals. They just create havoc. And uh, at a school talk recently, one kid asked, uh, you know, what can I do? I said, well, get yourself a gun licence and go and shoot feral donkeys, feral camels, feral horses, foxes, um, rabbits. Take the lot of them. Take the pigs. Um, clean it all up. 
And that is a great thing you can do for the environment. It was at a very conservative Catholic college, and I think the teachers were quite shocked. Well, we, we certainly have a lot of possums in our bush decimating it. And, you know, well, we gave them to you. Go and yeah, see them. You did. You did. But I think they've, they've enjoyed our company better than yours because I don't think they quite cause the same damage in your neck of the woods as they do here. Yeah. But, hey, can, can we go back to um, – this electricity stuff uh, with regard to solar panels and uh, wind farms and the like, you, you've got political push to have, well, aside from closing down Liddell, you've got a political push to have Snowy 2.0 pumped hydro. Is that going to hit, hit the ground? Because we have a similar push in New Zealand to do what's called Onslow. And, you know, I don't see how, uh, from my point of view, it stacks up ever. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's a net energy loss process. In New Zealand, you've got higher rainfall than where our snowy system is. It's a net loss situation. We have perfectly good coal. Uh, we've got we've had a, a reactor in Australia for seventy years. Uh, this reactor has been producing medical isotopes. We have already a nuclear industry in this country. We are going to have nuclear submarines, and here we are. We're going to have nuclear submarines parked in Sydney Harbour. Yet we're not going to have the city of Sydney provided with electricity from nuclear. I mean, that's just dumb. So all of these ideas are generated by political ideologues, but none of these ideas are underpinned by engineering, not underpinned by people who built grids or built power stations. And by cutting out tried and proven 24-7, 365 day a year conventional power, that's okay. If you're going to replace it, let's replace it with something that's better, cheaper, and more reliable. And that mm. is not done. What's happened in my country is we've had coal-fired power stations that have been flattened. There's been nothing put in their place. They've been totally flattened, especially here where I live in South Australia. We've had two of them flattened, and we're trying to live off sea breezes and sunbeams with a battery that will give you about five minutes of power for all of South Australia. And that's just nuts. We are a very low rainfall part of the world. We can't have hydro. Um, we've got a shortage of water. Uh, so um, we should be thinking of nuclear. And in South Australia, we produce thousands of tonnes a year of yellow cake from the Olympic Dam mine. We export all of that. There are now Canadian reactors that can run on yellow cake. And any of the spent fuel we can put underground in some very old deep mines here right out in the middle of the bush. There's no one that lives around them. And so I just shake my head and think, how can people be so stupid? And I think it's the the hunt for those few votes around the middle ground where people might vote on environmental matters. People who are wealthy on the right might vote for environmental matters and they're chasing that vote. Um, we have, although we've got a compulsory voting system, we have about 5% of people who don't vote. You can change your government if you can harness those 5%. You don't mm -hmm. even need to have policy. You've just got to get them to come along and vote. So these are complex problems, uh, but energy is fundamental. As society becomes more industrialised and more civilised, we use more energy. We once did our farming using human muscle and the muscle of beasts of burden. Then we had machines do it. Um, we once had factories would 
crush things or break things. Um, and before that, we had people do it by hand. So each process involves more and more energy. We have a lot of energy. Um, we have a huge amount of energy. New Zealand does have energy with coal, uh, with, with uh, geothermal in the North Island. Um, but again, New Zealand would be a perfect place for nuclear. And we don't even have the debate anymore. That's the problem. It's shut down. I mean, we have we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Brian Leyland. He's a big promoter of it, uh, been well known to yes, be promoting know, it for years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his voice is uh, among the wilderness. It's just uh, not – the debate is not had. So I, I don't know where we go with uh, go next. I mean, I th- – you know, you give us hope. Uh, we just want, uh, as part of the, the RCR, the Reality Check Radio um, mantra that I use, it's simplicity and truth. And I think that's what we've got to get to so that society understands the truth in simple bites. I've looked at this climate science stuff for 30 years. It's very difficult for anyone to retain their interest for more than a, more than a page of reading, unless you're vitally interested in it. and you know, I'm involved in some other other organisations and we, we start debating the minutiae when, in fact, we don't need to. We, we know the truth. We just can't seem to get it out there loudly enough. And it's people like you, Ian, that are uh, that helping us. Uh, well, let, let me so. give you three simple truths. The first is that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Um, give me half a dozen scientific papers that show it. I've been asking that for decades. The second thing is that we know from ice core measurements and we know from solubility studies in chemistry and Henry's law, etc., that as temperature starts to increase, then you release carbon dioxide out of water and later the carbon dioxide content increases. So it's not that carbon dioxide drives a temperature increase. It's the exact opposite. As a temperature increase drives an increase in carbon dioxide. And the third point is my world of geology looks at the past. And in the past, we've had massive climate changes. Even when humans in, in the younger dryers were on planet Earth 11,000 years ago, we had a 15 degrees Celsius change in 10 years. Uh, that's global warming. And that was a natural process. So we've had massive climate changes in the past. Every time it's been warm, we've had a thriving of the human population. We've had economies boom. Uh, In the the medieval warming, for example, we built the great cathedrals and monasteries and churches and universities. Uh, We had two crop harvests a year in, in Europe. In the cold times, people die like flies. The average longevity goes down in cold times. So in human times, we see that we humans, a product from from the Rift Valley of Africa, we love it warm. People go to warm climates for their holidays. And in the past, we see that all life thrives when it's warmer. And for most of time, the planet has been warmer and wetter than now. For less than 20% of time, we've had ice on Earth, and we're in one of those times now. The six out of the six great ice ages started when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. So carbon dioxide couldn't be driving warming. How how could you have an ice age if you had higher carbon dioxide? So I think those three points, uh, looking at no one's ever shown the the story, 
temperature rise, then carbon dioxide rise, and then looking at the past, just wipe this out straight away. The problem is that when you give these facts to the ideologues, they say, well, they're your facts. Um, they, they cannot analyse critically any facts. Their ideology dominates because this is the new religion. This is the new religion that's replaced Christianity and it's blind, it's unreasoning, um, no data will change anything and you can't use scientific facts to change someone who's, who's found faith. So that is the battle we've got against a new religion. they have often used this term you know mass hypnosis and about quite a lot that's happened in the in the past 2 3 years and we see this gravy train i i call it a gravy train because very honestly i don't think i see youngsters of course converted your australian new zealand psychiatrist society says that 3 out of 4 youngsters are worried but for the older generation i do believe it's got a lot to do with money and you know uh, there's the saying by and i forget the writer's name now who said that you cannot convince a man of something when his paycheck depends on his not knowing it I, it's upton sinclair i remember now and that is would you have a ballpark idea of what sort of funds are being splashed about in australia on climate science funding research funding in the current budget mm. it was 35 billion oh. um when you add the states to it we are dealing with hundreds of billions if you're looking at it worldwide it's trillions uh, it is a wonderful business because you can make a fortune out of frightening people witless you can make a fortune out of renewable power building solar and wind and getting massive subsidies in the uk the solar and wind generators get paid when they don't produce they also get paid when they do produce uh, it is a new business and there is a huge amount of employment and a huge amount of money related to this on the plane up from adelaide to canberra I was sitting in front of a chap who was talking to his neighbor and he was saying he's involved in building a new wind turbine uh, area at crookwall north of canberra and he was just saying what a load of bullshit it was uh, he was looking at the volume of concrete our 105 trucks needed to come in to pull the footings for a wind turbine just work out the amount of carbon dioxide that's released in making that cement and he was talking about how the whole business is is a complete fantasy so we have created new business opportunities these businesses have not competed on a level playing field these businesses have um subsidies to keep them alive mm. and there's a whole lot of people sucking off this and i often ask when people ask me these sort of questions i say well follow the money this has got nothing to do with science it's got nothing to do with environment it's all about a new way of creating money, money. and taking money through people's electricity bills So uh I'm not sure if you're aware of our former prime minister's uh, election night speech when she took the podium she talked about building back better uh, a just transition a reset uh and that language is quite common uh as I've discovered uh with other political leaders around the world and in fact some organizations are your political masters using that same language Exactly the same language and the journalists should ask simple questions like how 
Show me how we're going to have this transition. Show me how we're going to completely reverse the grids such that the wind and solar out in isolated rural areas um, can uh, um, have the uh, electricity come back into the areas where it's used. And I view this rather like your circulation system in your body. Uh, you have large veins coming out of the heart, and by the time the capillaries are at your toes, they're very, very small. Now, the electricity is the same. You have very high voltage coming out of the generators, and by the time you get to someone at the end of the line, uh, then you've, you've got 415-volt power, which goes down to 240-volt, which goes into, into the residence or the factory or whatever. Now, what's happening is that these wind and solar facilities are be being built at the end of the line. And, and you can't push blood through the capillaries to get up into the aorta. It doesn't work that way. You can't do it. So you have to totally rebuild the power stations. You've got to totally rebuild the grids. And no journalists, and I blame the journalists a lot for this, the mainstream media are, are, are pretty evil, I think, but no mm -hmm. one's asking the simple questions. Well, yeah, that's very nice with the transition. Show me. How are you going to do it? Or... If they say, oh, by 2050, we're going to be net zero. Okay, fine. Now, you're in power now. What changes are going to happen between now and 2024? What are you going to do between 2024 and 2025? And between 2025 and 2026? And that is a mechanism for holding their feet to the fire. No one does that. People say, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, in this country, we're having to build 22,000 solar panels a day to get anywhere near Z net zero. Now, we're not doing that. And we've got to do it between now and 2030. It will never be achieved. And those who are giving us this message won't be in power then. So it's it's really the mainstream media to raise these really simple questions. Well, the simplest question of all I saw recently in the U uh, United States Parliament where Senator Kennedy uh, just asked that something similar to this, uh, we're going to spend about uh, so many trillion by 2050. But what is the temperature change going to be? And, of <laughs> course, he couldn't get an answer from it. It was fabulous, wasn't it? Ducky it was waving fabulous. and bobbing, but no answer. Now, there's trillions involved in this. Not only did, do you need an answer, you need something that's very carefully argued and then something that can survive a simple due diligence. That doesn't happen. Mm. No, it, it doesn't happen. And, you know, ultimately the rubber will hit the road. We saw the riots out of Sri Lanka last year when people were being starved. That reminds me of what you've written in Green Murder. I also refer to a recent report that UNICEF commissioned the journal Lancet wrote it for UNICEF, and it's called A Future for the World's Children. And they're talking about, they ultimately, they rank the countries on the basis of sustainability index and flourishing index. And guess who tops the sustainability index? In, in order, number one is Burundi, Chad, Somalia, Congo, Malawi, and these countries. So it's inversely proportional on flourish, flourishing index. Burundi is 156, Congo is 179, Chad is 178. Why don't we go and ask the children in those countries? You know, so, so just too bad you're bad on the flourishing index, but hey, you're doing really well on the sustainability stakes. This is ultimately, it's, it is going to happen regardless of what we think or whatever the left preaches, isn't it? There's no escaping. I, I, look, um, uh, Jasper, you, you've hit a very important point here. Young children in the Western world are idealistic. 
And you can then use those sort of simple arguments to show that what you are promoting is going to kill people of your age in other countries. And if you want to save the planet, these are the things you've got to address. Children like you. Children who in parts of the Indian subcontinent and in Africa will live in a hut. And I've seen these huts in many parts of the world made out of mud and donkey dung. And in that hut, there was a woman slaving in there trying to keep it warm and trying to cook food. The hut is full of smoke. And she dies of respiratory diseases, as do her children. And simple, reticulated, coal-fired electricity would change that because that means that children would have light and they could do their homework. Children would have energy for cooking food and for heating and for cooling. And that is the greatest thing you can do to these countries. You can actually give them coal-fired power. And by refusing to do this, which the UN is doing, they know they're killing people. And their own numbers show that. So I, th I think you can exploit that sort of guilt with young children. These children are suffering eco-anxiety, and that's because teachers have beaten the bushes too hard. The media has beaten the bushes. It's a wonderful world in front of us. It always has been for every child. Uh, and a lot of children want to go out and help and do other things. You can, you, can, you can show them that the planet can be made better for people of your age. Yeah, and isn't that a great story to tell? Surely that's nicer to tell to school children and, and anyone that wants to listen than all the negativity that comes down the, the pipeline at us. I mean, I yeah. the great... Yeah, sorry, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just said yes, yes. So... Where are we going to go to next? Uh, what you know, We've got these parliaments. Uh, you've got one. We've got one. They're hell-bent on net zero. Uh, we've tried to talk about it uh, a little bit in this discussion. The circuit break is going to have to be what? Are we going to have to be uh, into a recessionary mode or what? Yep. I mean, New Zealand, I think, yep. is here. I, I, think, I think that's the only thing that will change it is a recession or a war. If you go onto the Plata River, you see these wonderful mansions built by the richest country of the world in the 1920s, and that was Argentina, and they're all empty. There's this flapping galvanised iron and crumbling buildings. That was a country that was incredibly rich, and it destroyed itself with stupidity. And my hope is to have a recession, not a depression, and in that, um, those tighter times with high interest rates, with high inflation, with a lack of resources, uh, people paying massive bills for their electricity, then they might suddenly say, hmm, let's have another look at this. But governments are going to do some pretty evil things before that. The first thing is they'll kill off the big users of electricity, like smelters, aluminium smelters. They'll be the first to go to stop cities um, having blackouts, and having a blackout in a city is electorally not very sensible. So it's going to be drawn out longer than it should be. But I think that's the only solution, to have hard times. I know, much as none of us would like this. I don't want it that at might, all. Not, neither do I. And But that, you know, ultimately when the pain gets personal, that's only when quite a few people wake up all together in a hurry. And here's hoping we, we stop before that. I think we've got just over an hour now, Ian. 
thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure we are going to get quite some feedback on uh, this interview. For listeners, our text number is 2057. We were listening to Australian geologist Ian Plymer, who has been very generous with his time today. And we have not gone too academic. This has been a very freewheeling discussion. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you Ian. for having me and happy to appear again. And if some of the feedback wants questions, happy to appear again. Wow. Absolutely. You took the words out of my mouth. It's great, Ian. Thank you. And uh, yeah, look, come and get some pinots from Central Otago. Happy to happy to show you around. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. I'm about to go downstairs and maybe look for one now. You're, you're two and a half hours in front of me. You're probably ready for one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. We'll be Thank in touch. You. Thank okay. you. Bye. My parents immigrated from India 40 years ago to Southwest Ohio, where I was born. They weren't rich. I asked my dad why he chose to come to Ohio. And he said it's because his older sister, who also came from India, lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, that, of course, begged the question of why my aunt had left India all the way to come to Fort Wayne. And we joke around that because it's the only state where the word India is actually contained in the name of the state, Indiana. So that's the story we tell anyway. My dad was a company man himself. He was in at GE's Evendale, Ohio plant. He worked there loyally for over 40 years. And my mom was a geriatric psychiatrist who spent most of her career treating patients with Alzheimer's disease in nursing homes in the Ohio area. If I learned one thing during my own upbringing, it was that being the odd man out in a crowd isn't always a bad thing. I went to a pretty rough public school through eighth grade, where it wasn't particularly abnormal for a kid to show up to school with a knife. My parents then switched me to a private Jesuit high school, something that actually shaped my own views, even though I'm a Hindu. And when I went on to college and I graduated from Harvard in 2007 in biology, I ended up becoming a biotech investor rather than an academic scientist. I went to law school along the way. I went to Yale. I had an itch to study law and political philosophy, but I decided to keep my job at the fund where I worked. And after I finished law school in 2013, I had a new itch. I had an itch to build something rather than just be a passive investor in biotech. So I left my job to start a biotech company. I started by developing a drug for Alzheimer's disease, a passion that I'd actually picked up from my mother. But ultimately that drug failed. It was the first drug we developed. That failure hurt and it chastened me. But it also taught me that hardship isn't the same thing as victimhood. And eventually, the company thankfully went on to develop important medicines for other diseases that helped a lot of patients in the end, one of which was a drug for prostate cancer. I led the company for seven years until I stepped down as CEO this January because I felt even more compelled to help treat a different kind of cancer. It's one that affects the heart of our country. It's not a biological cancer. It's a cultural one. And given the reality of the world that we live in, I wasn't really free to speak about it as the CEO of a high-profile company. So I had to step down so that I could talk about it, not as a CEO, but as a citizen. That new disease, that new infection is spreading across our country like wildfire. It is one that even the best of science is not going to cure. And that new disease is called woke culture. It's the new secular religion in America. And its belief system centers on the idea that your identity is based on your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation, full stop. It posits that America is a systemically racist country, and that if you're black, you're inherently disadvantaged, and that if you're white, you're inherently privileged, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your upbringing was. Your race and gender govern who you are and what thoughts you're allowed to have. That's it. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley summed it up pretty neatly last year, actually, when she unapologetically declared, 
We don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice, end quote. I'm going to guess that I don't fit her description of what counts as a brown voice. Here's the clever part about how this particular virus spreads. If you disagree with any of those claims, then that actually means you're just racist and you don't know it. And the more you resist a woke claim, the more that's seen to validate it. If you say, I'm not racist, that means you are racist. If you say all lives matter, that somehow means that you believe that black lives don't matter. If you capitalize the W in white or fail to capitalize the B in black, you're racist. And there is no greater damnation in modern America than to be labeled a racist. So between pledging fealty to this new religion and being tarred with the scarlet R, everyday Americans are choosing to bend the knee. The consequences may be existential for America. This has created a new culture of fear in our country. Fear of losing your job, fear of failing a class at school, fear of becoming a pariah in your own community. And almost every day, somebody new is sacrificed at the altar and excommunicated from civil society for saying the wrong thing. This new culture of fear has completely eroded our culture of free speech in America. A good measure of the health of any democracy, especially American democracy, is the percentage of people who actually feel free to say what they actually think in public. And right now, I am sorry to say that we are doing abysmally on that metric. According to a recent survey conducted by the Cato Institute, over 60% of Americans, an overwhelming majority of this country, says they are afraid of saying what they believe because of the current political climate. That is not America. It is not the country that my, my parents came halfway across the world to join. It is not the country I learned to pledge allegiance to as a kid. We have a new red guard in our country that's reminiscent of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, except instead of adhering to Marxism, the new guiding principle for today's red guard is this new form of wokeism. So that's where we are today. In the name of diversity, we've sacrificed true diversity of thought. In the name of democracy, We've sacrificed our most important democratic norms of free speech and open debate. In the name of inclusion, we've created an exclusionary culture where certain views are just not welcome. So how did we get here? How did this new wokeism become so dominant in our country? The story goes back to the 1990s. A new discipline emerged in American academia. It was called critical race theory. It posited that race and other inherited characteristics created these invisible power structures that actually govern our real social relationships. In the 1890s, Karl Marx had posited that the invisible power relationships were based on economic disempowerment. But critical race theory changed that narrative. By the 1990s, critical race theory posited that the real culprit was invisible racial disempowerment. That's when wokeism was born. Now, to be clear, in the 90s, wokeism used to be about challenging the system. And there's something about that which I respect, even if I disagree with it. But today, wokeism is not about challenging the system. Wokeism is the system. So how did this fringe intellectual theory from unknown academics in the 1990s manage to infect our most important social institutions today? That is the question. And in my opinion, the answer actually begins with the 2008 financial crisis. Immediately after the 08 crisis, you'll remember, corporations were the bad guys. The old left used to say that corporate power was bad and the thing we needed to do was redistribute money from rich people to poor people to help poor people. Agree or not, that was their theory. But the new modern woke left in the post-2008 world had a different theory. 
They said that the real problem wasn't poverty. It wasn't economic injustice. Rather, it was racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And guess what? That presented a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Wall Street. They could no longer be the bad guys, but instead could actually become the good guys just by adopting these woke values. Now, remember Occupy Wall Street. That was after 2008. That was a tough pill for Wall Street to swallow. But this wokeism stuff, that was easy. Applaud diversity and inclusion, put some women on boards, create an affinity group for analysts of color. You're good to go. Just look at what Goldman Sachs did last year when its CEO declared from, of course, the mountaintops of Davos that Goldman would not take a company public in the United States unless it met Goldman Sachs' standards for board diversity, where, of course, Goldman's the sole arbiter of who counts as diverse. The banks were thrilled to dance to this new woke tune. They were happy to lend both their money and their legitimacy and their credibility to this new woke movement. But they only need one thing in return, just one ask in return. Woke left, get the new left to leave Wall Street alone. And it worked. Each side won from the trade. Big banks got to use their market power to force these woke values down our throats. And in return, the new left agrees to look the other way when it comes to leaving their market power intact. So in a nutshell, here's how it worked. Wall Street got in bed with a bunch of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism. And of course, they put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. You don't even know what that is anymore. That's the Wall Street edition. As it turns out, there's a really similar backroom deal playing out in the other coast, in Silicon Valley as well. And here's the way it works over there. Woke activists demand that big tech censors political views that they don't like. And in return, the left agrees to leave big tech's monopoly power intact. And again, it is working masterfully for both sides. That is how this new arranged marriage works. This is not a marriage of love. This is more like mutual prostitution, and it is working. And the net result is the rise of America's newest leviathan, the woke industrial complex. It is no longer just Wall Street. It is no longer just Silicon Valley. It is the entirety of corporate America as we know it. It's Coca-Cola training its employees on, quote-unquote, how to be less white. And issuing public statements about voting laws that make it sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer. It's United Airlines saying that it's going to apply a quota system based on race and gender to the pilots who are in the cockpit even if that means throwing out pilot tests as a part of the process. It's Major League Baseball deciding to move this year's All-Star game out of Atlanta. It is Nike donating tens of millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter, a Marxist movement that professes to care about black lives, while it also calls for the decimation of the nuclear family structure. While, by the way, Nike, of course, continues to market $200 sneakers to black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school. Go figure. Liberals accept it because they love woke causes. Old school Republicans look the other way because their inner conscience tells them that the free market can do no wrong without realizing that the so-called free market that they idealize doesn't actually exist today. So both sides are ultimately blinded to the rise of this new 21st century monster that is far more insidious and far more powerful than anything we have seen in the history of our country. Now, I would love to tell you that it doesn't get any worse than that, but it does. It does get worse. There's a new guest who's shown up on the scene and turned this unholy alliance into a threesome. That's the Communist Party of China. They understand this game more deeply than any of us. There is even a Chinese word for wokeness. Baitswul is the word. It literally refers to woke white people in the United States, and they use it to laugh at us. 
And even worse, they're using wokeism as a geopolitical tool to erode our standing on the global stage. And if you have any doubt about that, just look at what they're saying. Last year, when European Union leaders pressed Xi Jinping about China's human rights violations, including locking up over 1 million Uyghurs in concentration camps, who, by the way, Apple uses as slave labor to make their iPhones. I bet they don't tell you that. His first response was that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. Last month, when China's top diplomat came right here to the Alaska summit, in his opening remarks, he falsely asserts that the United States is slaughtering, that is his word, slaughtering black Americans, and that he hopes the United States does better on human rights. That would be laughable if it didn't have such serious consequences. They know that our greatest geopolitical advantage is not our nuclear arsenal. It is our moral standing. But now they're using American capitalism as a weapon to accomplish their own goals by using woke corporations to undermine the United States from within. Take Disney, just a couple of years ago, said it couldn't film in Georgia, in the state of Georgia, if they passed a new anti-abortion statute. Yet they just filmed Mulan last year in the Xinjiang province of China, which is literally ground zero, the epicenter of the Uyghur human rights crisis. And they didn't just film there. They went further. They said, we thank the local government. They thanked the CCP for allowing them to film there. That's Disney. The NBA, it's even worse. The NBA regularly, regularly decries alleged racial injustice here in the United States, yet it does not say a peep as they continue to expand into the Chinese market. It gets worse than that. When Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, once tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, LeBron James, one of the most outspoken critics of the last president, one of the most outspoken supporters of Black Lives Matter, just last week, tweeting a picture of a cop in Columbus, Ohio, and saying, hold him accountable. He's the guy who immediately came, of course, to China's public defense. This two-faced behavior of corporations and their celebrity cronies is not just an accident. It is by design. The CCP is playing us like a Chinese mandolin, and it's working, and they're doing it by using our own companies against us. And why are these companies doing it? The answer is plain and simple. Money. China restricts market access to any company who criticizes the CCP. And even better than that, it favors market access to China for companies who criticize the United States. It is as simple as that. Companies are simply doing what companies do, whatever allows them to make the most money. Unfortunately, the American people are falling for it. It's worked like a charm, especially for China. So it is now no surprise that they are using that same tactic to deflect accountability for COVID-19 as well, in particular, the origin of this virus. Let's just talk about the name of the virus. The Marburg virus is named after a town in Germany where that virus originated. The Ebola virus is named after a river in Africa where it came from. The Zika virus is named after a forest in Africa where it came from. Countless other examples. Japanese encephalitis virus. I could go on. Even when it comes to COVID-19, you can say the UK strain. You can say the South African strain. You can say the Brazilian strain. You can say the Indian double mutant strain. Any of those are perfectly acceptable. But if you say the Wuhan virus you are immediately bashed as a racist and a bigot. Ask yourself why. The CCP has successfully weaponized not just the COVID-19 pandemic, but the woke pandemic 
by using the threat of racism against the United States to evade accountability for its own actions. And worst of all, American corporations are helping them at every step of the way. That is the real Chinese virus that we need to fight. It is a cultural virus that erodes America's greatest competitive advantage by equating American idealism with Chinese nihilism. And when that happens, nihilism wins every time. Thank you, LeBron James. Corporations win. Woke activists win. The Chinese Communist Party wins. The real losers of this game are the American people and American democracy itself. So what's the solution to all of this? In 1980, one of my heroes, Ronald Reagan, correctly identified that the greatest threat to individual liberty and prosperity in this country was big government. But today, that's only half the story. The real threat in America isn't just big government. It is this new hybrid of big government and big business. Look, I am all for cutting taxes and slashing government regulations. But as Abraham Lincoln, a great Republican, said 160 years ago, the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. We are going to need new legislative solutions, ones that meet the challenges of 2021, not just the challenges of 1980. This is no longer about just saving capitalism from big government. This is about saving capitalism from itself. In the short run, we're going to need legislative solutions that stay true to our unabiding belief in the power of private enterprise, yes, but while also recognizing the ways in which our system of private enterprise has been co-opted and corrupted by external forces. Take the case of big tech censorship. Conventional wisdom holds that technology companies should be free to regulate what content does and does not show up on their websites because of private companies and the First Amendment conventionally, only protects against big government censorship. Fine. But that actually misses the essence of what's happening in the real world today. The liberal wing of Congress has actually co-opted Silicon Valley through the back door to do what government cannot directly accomplish under the Constitution. If you have any doubt about that, look at what they do in these congressional hearings. Democrats regularly threaten social media companies with regulatory reprisal if they fail to take down so-called hate speech or misinformation. And it works. Last year, the day before yet another Democratic congressional grilling, Facebook announces new restrictions on so-called hate speech. And these restrictions became even more stringent after, of course, Democrats took control of the White House and the Senate, in addition to the House of Representatives. It was actually what Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal attributed to, in his words, quote-unquote, a shift in the political winds. Those are his words. And he was right. Now, if those congressional threats are the stick, there's also the legislative carrot. That's Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which immunizes tech companies from liability for censoring otherwise constitutionally protected speech. So take it together. These actually represent a modern form of crony capitalism, except in reverse. Big government is actually able to turn companies into pawns to engage in otherwise constitutionally prohibited censorship. And personally, I believe that state action under the mantle of private enterprise is still state action. I believe we have to a statutory fix for Section 230. We need to fix Section 230. And it says that if you benefit from this kind of broad federal immunity, then these tech companies also have to be bound by the same standards as federal government. Plain and simple. Federal government cannot dispatch a private company to do what the federal government can't do directly. And when that comes to political censorship, it means abiding by the standards of the First Amendment after all, even if you are a tech company, so long as you benefit from Section 230 immunity. 
I'm in favor of other legislative fixes that eliminate crony capitalism, and especially this reverse form of crony capitalism and the fundamental unfairness that results from it, especially fundamental unfairness arising from flawed policies in the first place. Let me give you another example. If we live in a world today where private businesses cannot discriminate on the basis of race, sex, or religious belief, then I do not believe those businesses should be able to discriminate on the basis of political belief either. Yet that is exactly what's happening day in and day out in our country today. We could easily solve that problem in a really simple way. Add political belief to the list of protected classes in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, full stop. Now, of course, there's the libertarian side of my brain, even the libertarian side of my conscience, which says that, look, isn't it wrong to add just another rule to what private businesses can and can't do? Because in a libertarian utopia, the market should solve these problems on its own. I'll tell you how the market could solve the problem. For example, I used to think this way myself. If some businesses discriminated against conservatives, then that should, in theory, create a business opportunity for somebody else to capitalize on. For example, by hiring those same conservatives who are fired by these businesses over here. Well, guess what? That creates a market opportunity for the next guy who could just hire those fired conservatives. Sounds, sounds great on its face if you're in libertarian utopia. Here's the main problem with that argument. That same logic should apply to discrimination based on race, sex, or religion too. Yet as a society, we now unquestioningly accept those restraints on businesses. Now, perhaps there's an academic deb debate to be had somewhere about whether even those restrictions were or are a bad idea too. But that is truly a moot point today, since nobody, not a Republican, not a Democrat, not even any public libertarians are seriously advocating for the idea that businesses should be able to discriminate based on race or sex or religion. So my view is this, against that backdrop, if a business can't fire someone because they're black or Muslim or gay, then a business should not be able to fire someone just because they're an outspoken conservative either. If a social media can't kick you off their platform for being black or Muslim or gay, then they should not be able to deny you service just because you're a hardline Republican or a Democrat for that matter either. This is not just an academic debate. It is happening almost every day in this country. If it can happen to the 45th president of the United States, it can happen to anybody. I go through a handful of additional legal solutions in my upcoming book. But in reality, these legal solutions are just a form of symptomatic therapy. What we really need in this country is a cultural cure. The real solution to these problems is actually to gradually rebuild a shared vision of American identity that is so deep and so powerful that it dilutes this wokest nonsense to irrelevance. The answer does not actually begin with the government. It begins with everyday citizens who are willing to speak up and challenge the new woke dogma at school, at work, at home, and in their community. It also means cultivating a shared identity, both in ourselves and in the next generation of Americans with the revival of civic education that we have long missed in this country. Our schools teach our kids to view our history with shame rather than pride. Patriotism is on the decline. Religion has nearly disappeared. What does it even mean to be an American today in the year 2021? I cannot remember a time in my life 
where we more badly needed an answer to that question. And I personally believe that answering that question is the hardest and most important work we will ever do as Americans. Today, as a people, we are hungry for a cause. We are hungry for a sense of purpose. We are hungry for identity. The absence of a shared cause in America is the black hole at the center of our nation's soul. And when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, bad things start to fill the void. That is part of what makes wokeness so appealing as the new religion of our time. It is the modern version of opioid for our masses. As Americans, our jobs in the coming years is to fill that void with something more meaningful than just wokeness. Americans are hungry for a cause, and yet we have forgotten that in America, our country itself can be that cause. We have spent over a decade celebrating our diversity and our differences that we have forgotten all of the ways in which we're actually the same, united by a common set of ideals as a country. Most nations throughout human history were defined on the basis of an ethnicity or a language or religion or a monarch, not America. We were the first and greatest country defined on the basis of a set of ideals that unified a polyglot divided group of people. America was not just a place, it was a shared vision of what that place could be. And a fundamental part of that vision was the American dream. The idea that no matter who your parents were, you can achieve your dreams with hard work, your own commitment, and your own ingenuity. I have lived that dream. We call it the American dream for a reason. It is not a destination that we reach. It is a vision that we aspire to, one that we will always fall short of, but continue to keep pursuing. Anyway, that is part of what it means to have a dream. But over the last decade, something scary happened. We woke up. And once you wake up from a dream, you forget what it was all about. You might remember how it felt, and pretty soon you forget that too. That's the real danger of wokeness. But we still have time to get it right. If the 2010s were about celebrating our demographic diversity, then the 2020s should be about celebrating what binds us together as a people. The American dream. E pluribus unum, from many, one. The other side might say this is just a load of high-minded drivel because we never lived up to our ideals as a country. And you know what? They have a point. It's true that America isn't perfect. We weren't perfect at our founding. We aren't perfect today. I will venture to say we never will be perfect as a country. But more than any nation in human history, America is the pursuit of perfection, the pursuit of a more perfect union, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of liberty, equality, and justice for all. These are the values that won the American Revolution. These are the values that reunited us after the Civil War. These are the values that won us World War I and World War II and the Cold War. These are the values that still give hope to the free world. And if we embrace these common values, then nobody in the world, not a corporation, not a nation, not a virus, is going to defeat us. That is what true American exceptionalism is all about, and that is what we will need to marshal in order to defeat this new cultural epidemic. Thank you. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And that was your reality check for the week with me, Jasprit Boparai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson, on behalf of Don and me. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And thank you to our guests, to my friend, Chalpooth, who came on. And we looked back how she and I got together a couple of years ago and pretty much straight away started doing these United Nations webinars on VFF. We did them for nearly, nearly two years, every fortnight. And gosh, 
quite it's quite amazing to believe uh, you know how much uh, we've moved on from that time and there's more and more of the agenda coming on but yeah certainly living in interesting times aren't we and of course the ian plamer interview and i've got homework to do his book green murder a life sentence of net zero with no parole i'm only 150 pages through a nearly 600 page tome and I intend to get through this within this month. So wish me luck. Now, I think we will end this morning the way we started. Don and I were talking about how diversity, equity and inclusion policies are actually being more exclusionary than ever and costing us more than ever without really giving us a value proposition here. So I can think of no one better to end this morning with than Vivek Ramaswamy. He's an American entrepreneur, a brilliant mind, at least in my opinion, and he's the author of two books, Vogue Inc. and A Nation of Victims. Now Vivek is incidentally also a candidate for next year's presidential elections in the US. and he is someone who the wall street calls an anti esg crusader vivek spoke up uh, earlier last year when disney had something to say about florida's policies that limited the discussion of sexuality and gender in the classroom and he pretty much very honestly pointed it out that disney had no business poking its nose there but hey we are all about virtue signaling aren't we So as we go I'm going to leave you with the short past podcast and I hope you enjoy it. To the mothers out there, I hope you had a great weekend. This week weekend just gone and for those who have had to take some rain checks on account of various things of being a Sunday or they were working or something, I hope you encash them soon. Thank you so much for listening and we will be back next week. Till then, take care. Goodbye. Jaspreet Bhopparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.